Welcome to the Luminaries In and Out of Sect podcast, a show about the moon and how astrologers embody and relate to it. My name is SP Hall, and I'm your host. In today's episode on the Cancer Moon as the Sect Light, I speak with the wonderful, brilliant astrologer Amaya Rourke. We spoke about the placement of Maya's moon in the ninth whole sign house, but also talked about many other things, from the absorption of pagan practices into early Christianity to the effects of the moon cycles on marine animals' mating habits. We spoke about the myth of Hercules and the Hydra, and the way Cancer and Capricorn were viewed in ancient Egypt. We talked about sleeping beauty as a myth of the moon. We also discussed some of the differences between astrology and magic and other occult practices. Amaya spoke to her experience of the sensitivity that can accompany the Cancer moon and gave suggestions for navigating that, such as vagus nerve work and breath work. We discussed her waxing gibbous moon phase, especially as it relates to constantly striving, as well as the effects of the moon being out of balance. We also talked about the lot of fortune and perfecting from different points, and how the secondary progressed moon can modulate the natal lunar placement. As always, if you enjoy the work that I'm doing, please contribute to the podcast's sustainability by becoming a supporting member or offering a one-time donation on my website. There you can also find information on my services. I'm offering natal and horary consultations in addition to a timing consult that I recently launched. I also offer transcription, captioning, and audio and video editing. Thanks again to all those that have offered their generous support so far. I really appreciate you. Now for my conversation with Maya. I hope you enjoy it. Please be sure to check out the links to her website and socials below, as well as links to some of the resources that we touch on in our conversation. Amaya Rourke, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good today. How are you? I'm I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I had a little bit of a rough morning, but uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. It was really interesting. I was walking with my partner this morning, and like a lot of the times I can be nervous before a recording, and today I was a little bit nervous, but the... Uh, overarching feeling was kind of just excitement to talk talk to you um so yeah i'm excited to be here and i'm I'm grateful that you said yes to to come on oh i feel really honored by that <laughs> i hope i make you feel comfortable that's what a cancer moon dreams of right mm, absolutely yeah and i have my jupiter in cancer so we got some like jupiter moon synastry going on so hopefully that helps a little bit i think so well thank you for having me on here i was I always get nervous before everything. I think mm-hmm. it's a consequence of the moon phase that my moon is in. Mm. And so I spent the whole week studying because that gives me a false sense of security. <laughs> <laughs> I know how that goes. I know how that goes. Um, yeah, has the has what's been going on with you with like the um, recent astrology, anything in particular? Well, it's my Jupiter return. Oh, and so, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's not, I mean, it hasn't technically happened. We won't have a conjunction until like way later this year. I think actually next year, like the end of the beginning of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt it the minute it moved in. I was like, oh, um, hello, my love. Amazing. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Aries transits. It makes a lot of squares in my chart. And so 
it was really nice to feel that come in and like mm. suddenly make a lot of beautiful synastry. And I was like, oh, this is nice. I appreciate oh, this. That's wonderful. And do I know that you're a student of Sam Reynolds and he talks about Jupiter as kind of like the match funder. Do you feel like you've done that Jupiter work to gain the rewards of the the Jupiter return or how do you think about the how do you think about the Jupiter mm, return? That's a good question. And I'm so hesitant to say yes to that because I feel like that's when you get smacked. Right. <laughs> but you know, I've been doing this work uh as an astrologer now professionally and as my only kind of gig for oh my gosh, since twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've done a lot of work in figuring out what my practice is about, which is very Jupiter. Jupiter is the exalted ruler of my ninth house. So it's kind of important mm. to figure out the why and the meaning. It's in my seventh house. So um, I've been in a relationship for 10 years and it's going well. There's some changes Probably. that happen around 10 years. But I think that um, we've done a lot of work leading up to this point mm. to get there. Um, And it rules my fifth house. So a lot of stuff around, for me, it's creativity and pleasure. That's also going through a bit of a shift and being redefined, actually simplified in true kind of like earth sign uh, fashion. It's Mm. like, "Mm, let's let's narrow this. Let's get a little bit more uh, to the point, right? Mm. Amazing. Interesting. Do you feel like the Venus as your exaltation lord of your fifth uh and the kind of retrograde cycle she's kind of moving into do you think that plays into that at all as well oh probably yeah not to mention that they're square one another Mm. so kind of kind of testing out those values and how they're Mm. made manifest in a much more tangible philosophical manner yeah i would say that that's that's pretty spot on Mm, cool awesome um yeah can you just Give us a little bit more of an introduction to yourself and your practice. And, you know, I know I already mentioned Sam, but your teachers and, you know, influences that you've had. Sure. Um, I'm a Maya Rourke, if you didn't hear my name earlier. <laughs> I'm a professional astrologer and I I take an animistic approach to astrology that is also somewhat mystical. Um, I've done a lot of different things in my practice. I have learned uh, firsthand from Sam Reynolds. He was one of my mentors, but I've also taken, I do a lot of self-study just because I live in a different country. It's hard to get classes like um, during my time zone. So a lot of self-study with uh, various different people um, that offer their recorded classes like Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees and Chris Brennan. And I definitely have put a lot of focus uh, particularly on learning more of the Hellenistic astrology. I found a bit of a home there. And then in 2016, I had a little bit of a existential crisis while looking for a star in the sky, thinking it would be <laughs> somewhere else. And that led me to learning uh, how to do parentalenta, which is a method that was reconstructed by Bernadette Brady. And honestly, I feel like I should have studied with her, but she has sadly passed away. And that's mm-hmm. Diana Rosenberg, my probably my biggest influence in the star work I've done for several years. Uh, she wrote an amazing two-volume set called Secrets of the Ancient Skies, 1,600 pages on mm-hmm. just fixed stars. I mean, like literally her opus, she did that while she had cancer. This was her wow. swan song. 
Mm. And everyone asks me, where do I get that? Because I, I love it so much. I'll talk to you about it for hours. And I'm like, literally her family still self-publishes it. You have to get it on eBay. That's the only place mm. you can buy this book, which is a real pity. I wish a publishing company would pick it up. And like the only thing I would ask my only my only wish list item is please make an index for this book. <laughs> she didn't have time to do it, but that doesn't matter. It's amazing. Highly recommend it. But that's kind of been my trajectory. I've had a bit of an obsession with the fixed stars for a while. And then the moon was like, hello, knock, knock, knock. Do you remember mm. me, the domicile satellite ruler of your entire chart? <laughs> yeah, we got to talk. And so that led me to making a change there. And now I'm moon haven astrology. Amazing. And what kind of moon focused um, offerings do you have now? I know that you're kind of retiring the fixed star parents reading that you've been doing. So what are you so moving into? I am doing a reading called Lunar Rhythms. And this reading is all about learning about your moon, which could honestly be stretched out into like six readings. Mm. I try to find the best way to prioritize for my clients based off of what they personally say that they're struggling or would like to know more about. But the moon has so many different implications in the chart. And it really has such a huge impact to learn how to work with your natal moon as well as your secondary progress moon mm -hmm. and kind of how that impacts your life on an embodied level, on a kind of like day-to-day -day level. A lot of people I think today are struggling a lot with, um, well, burnout to be quite frank. I think yeah. we're all stretched to the limit mm -hmm. and coming back into uh, working with the moon helps us to kind of combat that I like to think of it animistically as kind of like the moon is the original self. It's the the both the animal self, but also the mind, because the body was the mind. Mm -hmm. In fact, the body forms the mind. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see it separated so much as kind of like the underlying mechanism of it. If you don't sleep or mm -hmm. eat or take care of yourself, the first thing that's impacted is your mental acuity. And so a lot of the work that I do with my clients has to do with the fact that they are struggling and they don't know how to live within their lunar rhythm. And that's why mm. they feel burnt out on top of capitalism, colonialism, and everything else we have going on. It's like yeah. often they'll make agreements or they'll say yes to things that they shouldn't. And they don't realize why it feels so bad because we are not taught to prioritize those body feelings as a form of information. Mm. Yeah. And so I've been very lucky to work with uh, some clients on this so far, obviously with me finishing off the fixed star stuff. It's been a rush of like too many people asking for fixed star readings because mm -hmm. it ends at the end of this mm -hmm. month. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting back to everything lunar because I have basically fallen head over heels like I do into a research rabbit hole that makes me fall in love with everything. And I'm just so happy to be able to talk to you about it. I'm nerding out and I'm talking too much. I can feel it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think it's too much at all. I'm, I'm super excited to, yeah, talk about this moon stuff. And I, I think that, yeah, you're you're just reminding me of how, at least in medieval Islamic astrology, the moon represents like the people more broadly. And I feel like they're, you know, I don't know how to tie this in to like an astrological transit or what have you, but I do feel like, over the last few years through the pandemic and everything like we all just are in a place where there's so much pain I think stored in our bodies and so much like unresolved stuff and you know I'm happy to be doing just my little part to kind of 
talk about the moon and, and focus on the moon because I do think that like these kinds of moon focuses are really important in our times to really get in touch with our bodies and, and the wisdom that our bodies have. So yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for the work that you're doing leading up to this. My homework was to listen to a bunch of episodes of your podcast and it was like such a joy. Oh, awesome. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Yeah. So it's interesting because we don't really know each other super well. Uh, you're friends with my partner and that's kind of like how we have a, a little bit of a personal connection, but we were just talking before with my partner about how like she doesn't even really talk about me with you a lot. And so like we're really kind of having a conversation for the first time today, like meeting today, even though we've interacted like a little bit here and there on, you know, Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah, we don't know each other, but I, I feel like that is uh, a problem with me because I have a real hard time with reaching out to people and I've definitely been watching everything you're doing. And obviously uh, your partner and I are friends and I don't ask questions either. I think it's because I'm a Scorpio mm -hmm. rising. I'll be like, ooh, that's invading someone's privacy. So I won't like ask anything. Mm -hmm. And I also won't be like, hello, hi, can I be yeah. your friend? So I'm really thrilled to actually be talking with you because otherwise it would probably take a lot longer <laughs> to happen. Yeah, maybe when we, I don't know if it's okay if I say the country that you live in. No, go ahead. Yeah, maybe when we like go to Ireland and, and visit you, like that probably would have been the first time. But yeah, I was actually curious uh, because I know of a few people from Ireland that are on like Astro Twitter, but is there much of a community, an astrological community in Ireland? Not that I am aware of. I actually met my first like astro friend not too long ago, like a month ago in person. We've been talking for a while. They live down mm -hmm. in Cork and I live up near Sligo. So those are kind of like opposite sides of yeah. <laughs> Ireland. Um, and we finally met up because they had some work stuff up here and it was just glorious. Um, mm -hmm. But I even tried at one point, I had a whole bunch of books, like old kind of modern books. I started off as a modern astrologer before I became a Hellenistic astrologer. And I had all these books that I wanted to donate because I wasn't using them anymore. And I have a bit of a book problem. So I've got mm -hmm. an agreement with myself that if it starts to be too much for the bookshelves I already have, that it's time to do a culling. And I tried to contact the astrological organization here and like nobody <laughs> responded to me. And I tried oh, several no. different ways. And I was like, either they don't exist anymore, or maybe they think that I'm spam. I don't know. Mm. But I have not met or talked to a bunch of people here that are into it. I would say the problem is um, people here probably are not the people to buy those sort of things from us. Mm. Um, they definitely are very, uh, how do I want to say it? They're very particular with how they spend their money here. Mm, and I think that that's kind of a consequence of, a lot of the kind of trauma that Ireland has been through mm. as far as resourcing is concerned. Mm. But it was pretty notable from the first day that I moved here back in like 2017, how many times I'd be buying something and someone at the cash register who's checking me out, even in small shops, would be like, oh, this is just so pricey. Do you want me to go change this for you? I have Venus and Capricorn. The answer is no. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> want you to change it for me. I want exactly that. But that happens to this day, even with people I've known for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, spending a few hundred dollars on like a reading is probably outside of what someone would consider to be a wise use of money, even if it could be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. 
so interesting. I, my family is um, historically from Ireland. I mean, I'm third generation American, Irish American. And my family is actually from Mayo, which is just south of, of Sligo. And uh, I have this real challenging thing with owning things. And like, I've kind of attributed it to my Capricorn stellium in the second house with you know Saturn there. But I do think that there really probably is something ancestral about just like, you know, especially uh, Mayo is considered, I don't know about now, but I think historically, like I've, I've seen like political cartoons where they kind of consider that like, just like a poor farm, farm place. And so during the famine, like a lot of people passed in that area, unfortunately, because there's just so few resources. It was like, and so anyway, I feel like there's probably... I'm having like an ancestral resonance resonance with that, but um, yeah, it's really interesting how those things can just affect something as like prosaic as consumer behavior. You know, I agree. Though I also have that Capricorn stellium, but mine's in the third house, mm. and it disposes almost everything in my chart except for my moon. Mm. And I have a really hard time with accumulation of anything, which is why I have the book rule. Most people oh, just go nice. buy more bookshelves, yeah. right? And I'm like, no, but what if, like, it's a lot of stuff, right? And I go through like probably four times a year, some sort of culling in the house where everything has to be cleaned out. I have to really examine what I own or what I don't like use and don't use. And then I will give stuff to charity or I'll send it to friends or I'll sell it because it starts to weird me out. If I, I honestly got to a point for a while where if I couldn't live out of a backpack, Oh I didn't feel good. Like it I say, oh my gosh, sick. because I resonate with that, oh <laughs> you know, God. somehow, or it's just like too much stuff. I'm just like, oh, I can't flee in the night. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it is really like a weird, which feels kind of yeah, ancestrally resonant. In a, in it's sense. like I don't have any like memory of needing to do that. You know, growing mm -hmm. up, I have mm -hmm. other memories that are you know challenging, but not that. Yeah. So it is a strange thing because I don't feel I've not seen the rest of my family act that way. Nor I actually like my my dad kind of had like he just was a craftsperson. So there were just there's just a lot of like wood carvings around like little figurines and just like a lot of stuff around the house. And like I had a relatively stable childhood in terms of like we had stuff and I had a pretty like I was, you know, at home, you know, we didn't move around a lot, anything like that. And so it's like. Yeah, there's no real reason why I can point to in my my upbringing that I'm like this, but for some reason, yeah. Well, at least we examine what we're doing with the things that we own, which I don't feel are really things. They're other people, right? They're non-human mm. people. And so yeah. I feel something I had to get over is for a while, I didn't want to damage any of my stuff. I felt like if mm. I damaged it, which meant like any kind of evidence of use. Mm, yeah that um I wasn't respecting it not not this is way before I realized I was an animist and I had to get over that and start kind of retraining my brain mm. to be like no use the the existence or the evidence of use is the patina of love is what I had mm. to start telling myself and I think it's beautiful that you grew up with someone who was making all these things out of wood because what a way to express love and creativity in the world but I had to kind of get over that and be like, no, it's okay. I actually have still to this day, I have some books I read a few times where I literally would just be sitting there barely cracking it open because I didn't want to crack the spine. I, I would mm. be careful with what was on my hands. I wouldn't make any marks in it. 
these books would look practically brand new like you just got them from the store mm-hmm. and I had to like I had to kind of brute force myself out of that mm. where I'd be like okay we can use pencil and we can underline and that's what <laughs> I've kind of come to now is like highlighters are expensive and I underline too much stuff so mm. it's a pencil and then if it's worst case if I start to feel guilty or if I want to sell it or whatever I can just erase it <laughs> yeah. it's not the end of the world but it is a strange thing and I do wonder sometimes if it does have something to do with that kind of polarity between Capricorn and Cancer mm. because I have this stellium in Capricorn like you do and then I have the moon in Cancer mm. and those are the two most dignified planets in my chart too right and like Cancer I feel is okay with stuff Mm-hmm. But I feel like maybe uh, it's the Capricorn. that's <laughs> like not so much, yeah. right? Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think a lot about that. As I said, like I have Jupiter in Cancer, and so I have my ascendant ruler, and then you know Saturn is one of the most dignified planets in my chart as well, and they're opposite each other. And so I do think a lot about Capricorn Cancer tension, and it's just interesting to hear you think about it, you know, in different houses in your chart, so different topics in your life, and some different planets involved, but that same kind of like oppositional challenge, that is an opportunity, you know, an opportunity for some kind of integration. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about animism? I I feel like we uh, have talked about it a little bit in a past episode, but it might be good to just get a sense of your take on what that term means. Well, you know, um, I know that Diana and our friend Palace call their astrology relational astrology. And I think that that's a good way to describe it. But I I tend to um, be a little timid about using other people's terminology. Mm. (laughs) So that's what it really boils down to. It's the idea that the world around you is alive and also has a soul. Mm-hmm. And that you are in relationship with the world, regardless of your awareness of it or not. And so the most responsible thing we can do is to become aware of that relationship and to learn how to be in healthy relationship mm-hmm. with the world, which can range. And I think that that's something that people might not fully understand. There's nuance to this. For example, my relationship to a shark is not going to be the same as my relationship to my dog, <laughs> right? right. And it's about learning. It's just like you can't be Mm -hmm. friends with everybody, but that doesn't mean you can't respect everybody. Right. And this idea that we're living in a relational world kind of changes the way in which we function in the world. Because if it's not there to be exploited Mm -hmm. and it's not there just to uh, for our own function and use, then we might be thinking a little differently about how we operate and what how we kind of move in our day-to-day lives so that we can live in greater harmony would be my hope. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the assertion and the prioritization of another being's beingness <laughs> or personhood, their subjectivity, you know, their them being a subject rather than like an object for our use. And I think we can think about kind of like inanimate objects that way. But I know within animism, there's even like an idea of ensouling of these kind of things that we consider in our everyday life as objects. And so I appreciate the kind of, I think that in the late stage, hopefully late stage capitalism world that we live in, there is this kind of objectification that can kind of permeate our lives because that is the 
construct of capitalism. And so I think that prioritizing subjectivity is super important. Yes, I agree because we, I, I would agree with you in, in this way, particularly the idea that we're objectifying everything includes one another, includes mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think that our obsession with trying to look a certain way, I think that, that that's one of the things that scares me a lot when I go onto places like Instagram and TikTok and see young yeah. people, you know, getting fillers because they don't want any evidence at all of any kind of age. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're spending more money on things that didn't matter as much to us or maybe weren't as available to us as much, um, mostly because we want to be seen a certain way, proves mm -hmm. that we are objectifying ourselves even. And that makes me sad. That makes mm -hmm. me sad for the people that live that way. It also makes me sad for our world because then that becomes the top priority is that if you become an object of desire for yourself in a way that's unhealthy, then it's going to supersede any kind of moral questioning as to whether it's good to do these things on a more global scale outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're in a crisis because it doesn't make us happier. It doesn't make us healthier. It's making us more neurotic. And I would even say causing a mental health collapse. Mm -hmm. And that's reflecting the ecological collapse that we're in. And so animism can be a really good way to combat that because it's hard not to fall into that. It's mm -hmm. really, really hard not to fall into that when we are in a uh, kind of an age of image. Mm -hmm. And this is what I had to start thinking about again with the idea of the things that I owned, which aren't really things, they're beings, mm -hmm. is... Um, Am I worshiping the image or am I in relationship with the being? Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between the two. You know, am I worshiping the image of, we'll say, intelligence by keeping my books pristine? Mm -hmm. Or am I in relationship with the being because I'm willing to write in them and underline them and make good use, use and not a kind of like a exploitative way, but in a correlational mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. co-creative way yeah. with the object or person that I am with mm -hmm. yeah I think books are a great example because I personally love marginalia and I think I think the rise of like people being really into vintage stuff is kind of a corollary, corollary in a kind of way to what we're talking about where people are trying to interact with like clothes in a different way in a more kind of like, I don't know, authentic or treating the, you know, the shirt as like having its own life kind of thing. And it's really cool when I buy a used book that has marginalia in it, because I love writing in the margins of my books, where it's like, you see the life of that person overlapping with the life of the book in the, in the conversation that's happening. And like, you get to be a part of that conversation. And so, yeah, I really, I really appreciate I really appreciate that, especially in reference to books and the kind of like life that books have and that we get to be a part of, be in relationship with, make a part of our own lives. Absolutely. It's kind of like uh, this might be super nerdy or really nostalgic or I don't know, sappy. I don't mm -hmm. know, Cancer Moon stuff. But I just got this book um, all about um, sea lore for Ireland here. And inside, I bought it used. I try to buy used when I can. Inside was a photograph 
of these two men and on the back it was like my best friend and co-sailor mm. and then, like I just sat and like teared up and I was like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> like, so this isn't just a book about sailing lore it was given to a sailor who was I guess uh in love with his best friend mm. and I got to receive the evidence of that and be in the presence of that and kind of makes me think about how we used to value objects a lot more because you knew everything that went into making it and you knew who made it yeah and we don't have that anymore it's completely mm -hmm. depersonalized and dehumanized it was something i'm obsessed with is kind of like uh the um what's it called the luddite movement yeah <laughs> which actually segs into the myth that i want to talk to you about Wonderful. regarding the moon but, you know, the Luddite movement became really pronounced because the spinning and weaving guild in the United Kingdom was being replaced by machines. And that's when they lost it, because this was an age, ages and ages long trade that was passed down from, you know, family to family, from family member to family member. And there were trade secrets mm. and superstitions. It was like a religion in a sense, which is actually mm. an interesting corollary because most of our art was probably the beginning of religion and they're intertwined, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they didn't just lose their livelihood by being replaced by the industrial Re revolution. They actually were losing an entire culture mm. and they were losing something that was precious within their family, this kind mm. of connection. And and something I think about all the time is like, wow, it's it's very true. It's one of the reasons I like uh, to purchase from small uh, businesses, particularly, you know, people who are craftsmen, mm -hmm. because I'll know who made it and I can ask questions about what it took. And mm -hmm. most of them are just eager to talk to you about like, let yeah. me tell you about where I sourced this <laughs> from, right? And I am such a nerd about that because I feel like we're losing that at this point when you can just click a button and buy anything without having to see someone face to face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I feel like we could probably go on for an hour or two about, <laughs> yeah, about this. But yeah, I'd love to return to focus on the moon. And to start with that, I just want to get a sense. I also just want to give a shout out to Justin Plunkett because you were on his podcast within the last few months. Um, and it was a really great episode. You talk a lot about your childhood in that. And I found that to be really fascinating. Um, so if people want to get more, more information about that, like, uh, I feel like that's a really great listen. Um, but I was just curious, because I don't think you addressed this in that episode. Um, I imagine you had a kind of relationship with the moon when you were a child because you had this really strong relationship with nature and like the forest where you lived, if that's the correct term. Um, and I'm just curious, like, if you could tell us a little bit about that. And maybe if you didn't have an explicitly uh, an explicit relationship with the moon, if there's like some moment that you remember of like coming into consciousness of this thing in the sky that revolves around all of us. Yeah. Um, when I was really small, definitely was not focused on the sky. Um, it was mm. dangerous to be outside at night where I lived. And okay. so I didn't get to go out unless my parents, like that was kind of like the strict rule. And it was one that <laughs> rarely, it's one of the rare ones where I was like, okay, I'll do what you say. Um, I didn't really question that one too much. Um, just because 
the forest goes from being something really magical in the day to being something uh, terrifying at night, which is why mm. we have so many myths around that. Right. Um, but that was particularly true because, you know, there were wild animals where I lived. Mm -hmm. And so you especially didn't go out at night because that's when your senses as a human being are not really up to par with uh, the environment. Mm. I do remember distinctly when I started to kind of think more about the sky, which was probably around age nine or 10. And my mom was, she was kind of my entrance into the natural world because she had, I think out of boredom, an obsession with the natural world. Like we had like mm -hmm. every National Geographic in our house and mm -hmm. because of the kind of um, very restrictive religion that we had, like we were allowed to watch a lot of documentaries, but not much else. Okay. And so she was a super nerd um, and she got us into like kind of looking up at the sky and she taught me about our first constellations. And when we moved to Phoenix, I lived in Wyoming for a good part of my childhood. And when I was reaching puberty, I moved to Phoenix, which actually mm -hmm. is where I was born. It's kind of a funny, weird kind of twisty lunar thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, where I moved a lot uh, when I was a kid. And mm -hmm. when we moved back to Phoenix, my mom was gifted uh, passes to the science museum there, which is actually one of the better science museums you can go to. It's got a planetarium and all kinds. And that was my favorite thing was the planetarium. Mm -hmm. I became kind of obsessed. And I remember seeing my first ever solar eclipse. I can't remember the exact age, but I remember we had a trampoline and uh, we lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere again. That's very much my dad, who is a cancer son. He was like, nope, mm -hmm. no cities for me. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I was allowed to go out at night there and I was laying on the trampoline and I saw the supermoon that was bright red. And I, when I say supermoon, I mean, like, I was like, holy cow. I actually had been watching a bunch of like um, apocalyptic movies with my parents. And I was just like, mm. is the world ending? Like, what yeah. is happening right now? But I was totally entranced. And my mom made me join the Girl Scouts. Um, and I became really, my, thankfully my troop, if you ever talk to other people who are in the Girl Scouts, it's, it's kind of a varied experience. It's not like the Boy Scouts where it's like really focused on like wilderness skills. Mm -hmm. Girl Scouts can be a whole range of things. There's like okay. a lot of like charity. You can go and learn things in businesses, things like that. My mom made me join and she was like, no, that's boring. We're not going to build a bear to learn about how they build bears. Mm -hmm. You're going to learn how to camp. And we're going to learn how to do things like navigating by the stars. Mm. And that's what I did um, all the way. I, I was a Girl Scout until I was like 17 or 18. I got my silver award. Did not go as far as my gold. If anyone knows what that is, thank you, fellow nerds. We're here <laughs> for it. I imprinted with a Boy Scout troop for a bit. I was a camp counselor. I did a lot of that kind of stuff. But I was always outside. And... Mm -hmm. Because of the difference, I will say Phoenix has some great, especially if you're on the outer edges like I was, some really great ability to see the night sky. Um, mm -hmm. Deserts are really good for that. Not my favorite environments. I definitely love forests a hell of a lot more. But if you want to go see some stars, going out in the desert is really the place to do it. And I started paying more attention to what was going on with the moon after that eclipse. Mm. And so um, from there, I was a super nerd. I had like, I went to like the uh, Intel summer science camp. I got a scholarship for that a couple of years in a row. And I started learning about it with marine science. 
Uh, I also got a scholarship to do some stuff with like SeaWorld and the Girl Scouts and learn about how marine animals are actually highly impacted by moon cycles. Uh, that's something mm. that has been well tracked and traced, you know, fish um, as far as like fertility goes and how they will spawn and breed and things like that, highly, highly impacted by the moon. And of course, you've got the tides. And so became a huger force in my life. I feel like my early life was much more like the moon is Artemis. Mm. And my later life became much bigger uh, in the sense of like maybe like Celine or Selene, right? Mm. In and that for, looking at the sky. Yeah, for people who might not understand what that shorthand means, would you mind just like elaborating a little bit on yeah. that transition? So there's a lot of different goddesses attributed to the moon in Greek myth. And um, Artemis is probably otherwise known as Diana by the Romans, um, mm -hmm. is one of the more well-known uh, lunar goddesses. She's the goddess of the wild. Just fun fact here. My mom's name is Diana. So, mm -hmm. And what's um, funny is that Diana Rose Harper on this podcast talked about the myth of Artemis. So if people want to hear about that, they can go back to yes. that episode. And there's so much to that that most people don't know this. The, the cult of Artemis is like, the big one of the biggest cults in uh not just the greek world it then superseded the greek world it superseded the roman world and stuck around when they started christianizing everything to the point that like it's actually mentioned in the bible oh, wow. <laughs> most people don't realize this she actually changed the way that worship happened in uh greek culture so mm. that's a very lunar thing to be like ah here have a sprinkle of change a lot yeah. of change and I wonder, not to get in the weeds on in Christianity, but I wonder if, um, at least in Catholicism, I grew up Catholic, and there's like people love Mary so so much, and I wonder if part of uh part of that has to do because a lot of the early Christian church was just like taking pagan practices that already existed and co-opting oh, yeah. them. So, but yep. it was like and throwing in Jesus. So it's like the the fact that we have Christmas has to do with the solstice. Easter has to do with the spring equinox, I believe, um, and like pagan holidays associated with those um, times. And so, yeah, it's just interesting. Like there's, a, you know, you mentioned art earlier, and I know in early Christian art, there's a lot of like, you'll see libation pouring in early Christian art, which doesn't have anything to do with Christianity, but is like an earlier pre-Christian practice that gets kind of brought into the early art. So it's super interesting. I think Mary was an amalgamation of so many different goddesses. Um, mm. But my my fun obscure fact about that is another cult that was huge that most people don't know about is the Dioscorides, which is the twins of Castor and Pollux. And they were so popular that they're actually also mentioned again in the Bible because they couldn't get oh, rid of wow. this cult. Mm. And instead of making them evil, because the temple of Artemis at Ephesus was considered evil, the Dioscorides mm. get kind of folded into Christianity quietly, and they show up in early iconography everywhere. You'll see like the 12 disciples and Jesus, and then these two other random dudes, and it's them, okay? <laughs> um, so yeah, I have a lot about that. My parents are both ministers, so okay. <laughs> yeah. won't go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, Artemis would have been like she was uh, considered to be the goddess of the wild, mm -hmm. and um, she's the one I relate to the most, that's for sure. I have 
Kapala is my heliacal setting star. And that was a star that was aligned to the temple. So mm. um, it's one that I deeply relate to uh, mm. Artemis particularly. But then later in life would have been more like Selene. And Selene was, um, some people call it Selene. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's Greek. I don't speak Greek, but I try my best here. Um, mm -hmm. We're doing our best, you know. <laughs> we're just doing our best. Um, she was considered the Titanic or pre-Olympian personification of the moon. So this mm -hmm. is a little bit of a differentiation. There's a lot of goddesses that are related to the moon, but the actual personification of the moon was Selene. And she has her own Orphic hymn, just like Artemis has her own Orphic hymn, just like mm -hmm. a number of the other goddesses associated with the moon has an Orphic hymn. But the one that we use for divination is, um, or not divination, but more for devotion, mm -hmm. is usually the the hymn to Selene because Selene is more of the um, goddess of the moon or the personification of the moon, which if you want a great translation of that, I'm going to plug Kristen Mathis here. I just oh, got awesome. done restudying her part one and I'm like, mm -hmm. give me more, Kristen. Yeah. Give me more. Yeah, Much we'll throw bigger. her her Substack into the show notes. Um, and also, if people just want to go back on this podcast to the introductory episode, uh, a different translation by Sarah Mastros. Um, Sarah was kind enough to let me read the Orphic Hymn to Selene on that intro episode. So people can go back and listen to that as well. But I know Kristen has some like, she's doing some amazing stuff with the Orphic Hymns where she's like, really kind of deconstructing it and kind of explaining it in ways that I don't, I don't know a ton about the Orphic Hymns actually, but like, it seems what she's doing is really impactful and important. Yeah, because she is one of the few people that has kind of like the triple threat going on where she has an occultic background, like a magical background. Mm -hmm. And then she has a classics background and she's also an astrologer. So you don't usually get someone who's all three. Right. And so she's actually able to decode it, particularly the kind of anthropological animistic origins and descriptions. But then she's also able to link back in with the astrology into the mythology in a way that I've not seen anybody do. So I will say Mastro's, Sarah Mastro's uh, hymn is absolutely beautiful. One mm -hmm. of the, the best, like as far as prettiness goes, as far as mm -hmm. the uh, kind of the sound of it and the reverence of it. I think Mastros has really nailed that. But if you want to see more of the background behind the meaning mm -hmm. and like what that would have meant, particularly for the Orphic mysteries, um, which underlie a lot of astrology, mm -hmm. then Kristen's work I think is absolutely invaluable right now. Awesome. Wonderful. Yeah. And you spoke about your love of like the moon's effect on the natural world. And I was just wondering if you knew just like, you know, people talk about, the moon and the tides and stuff but do you have like one maybe scientific fact that people might not know that's like a way that the moon affects sea animals because i think it's so interesting how like we are animals as well but and we have this like relationship with water that's very special but we don't have the kind of like living and breathing water that maybe fish or like kind of just sea animals have so i'm curious if like anything comes to mind there Oh, man. Um, I think the most fascinating thing is that the ancients said uh, that usually the 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 new moon and the full moon were not times to like perform acts of magic, right? Because these were like um, live wires. They're too much mm -hmm. energy, right? But what's funny is that this also correlates to like different breeding habits of particular marine animals 
Um, we see this with fish and we see this with mollusks a lot where actually they peak, we basically reaching up to like the waxing gibbous. That's when you see like the most kind of like breeding or laying of eggs and stuff. And then it's like they kind of black out during the full moon. And mm. then we have more activity again at the waning moon. And it's one of those things where uh, that has kind of crossed over. It constantly goes to my mind, like on a loop when people ask me things about, you know, magic as part of my practice has long time been kind of involved with the occultic side of this. And they're like, should I do this at a new moon or a full moon? And I'm like, nope, nope. If the animals <laughs> will not have sex at that time, we should not be doing things either. It's basically like the eclipses are the most extreme version of that. Mm hmm. But this is still happening on a monthly basis where like right. these are time periods to like rest or to enjoy each other's company, but maybe not to be trying to overextend ourselves because I find that fascinating. Why would an animal stop at the peak of the moon, particularly there's the most right. light, right? We obviously see a lot of like what we call lunacy behavior with animals. Mm -hmm um eclipse facts is something i've been de digging deep into and it's like oh my gosh like for bees bees are something i'm also obsessed with mm -hmm. um when an eclipse happens they all go and this is very typical of a lot of animals they go inside their hive thinking that it's night mm -hmm. but the difference with bees unlike birds birds will kind of like they'll have their twilight song when the eclipse first starts happening and they'll go into their nest and they start to sleep or pretending mm -hmm. to sleep i guess because it's only a few minutes and then they'll have their dawn song when the eclipse ends as if the day has started again and they go back oh, wow. about their day, right? But bees are different. Bees don't do that. Mm. What bees do is they go inside of their hives and then they send one uh, ranger out to mm. check things out. And then when he returns, almost every single time, they will not come back out of the hive for the rest of the day. Oh, wow. It's a total disruption to them. And they're like, no, nah, we're good. No bail race for us. We're chilling. Like, <laughs> Wow, that is fascinating. It's so interesting to hear just like, you know, because I, I feel like um, animals just know, you know, like, uh, obviously, like I said, like, we're animals as well. But I feel, you know, it's like, if it's gonna like, you know, a natural disaster is gonna hit or like some some things are happening. It's just like, there is this instinctual knowledge, I feel like that animals can often have. And so it's just really interesting to hear the different ways that these kind of subtle changes, um, subtle or maybe not so subtle changes, like impact the, their behavior in like very tangible ways. You have been writing up an eclipse guide, which I was supposed to put out at the last eclipse, but you know, eclipses don't work like that. So. Mm. <laughs> but there's so much I started to pack in there about like how the eclipses particularly really impact our natural world. And that we should pay attention to that because we are a part of the natural world. And not to like fear monger, but to be like, hey, like there's cycles of rest and there's cycles of activity. And this is one where we should be resting because things are already happening in our literally in our atmosphere that disrupt things. And then you've got how animals will act and like what it does to our world and kind of, yeah, we're a part of that. So maybe let's just go take a nap and, um, you know, watch some Netflix and chill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's a really beautiful thing that being attuned to the moon, just thinking about the moon can really do. Again, not to like continue to be super anti-cap on the astrology podcast uh, here, but um, like I feel like our society generally doesn't offer a seasonality. Like it's no. just kind of like work through the winter, work, 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 just keep working. And like that's not how humans have historically operated, you know, like 
this kind of modern time that we're in is actually relatively short in terms of overall human history. And like, historically, we are seasonal creatures, just like every other thing that's a part of nature. And so, 100%. yeah, I think being attuned to that and like noticing that and being like, yeah, there's an eclipse, I'm going to rest. Or yeah, the moon is void, I'm going to rest is like super, super helpful for me at least. Yeah, I think that it's a good way for us. I think some of it we can't avoid. For example, if you have a nine to five and it demands mm-hmm. you work at certain times, you know, and you've got to pay your bills, that's that's yeah. capitalism for you. Right? So totally. like, I'm not telling you to like call out every single time something's happening with the moon. But what I am saying is like you can attune your own rhythm within whatever is uh, in your power and your agency to saying yes and no to certain things and to giving yourself a lot more leeway because on top of um, having to work so much, we also will just pack things in. Mm. And that's something I think about a lot is like when I was a kid, I didn't try to like do everything every single day. Mm. And we've been sold a lie about this idea that we can have it all and be it all and do it all. And I'm like, how? We are one body. We are one body with one life. You are going to have to make trade-offs. No one wants to talk about that part. And if we pay attention to the moon in our charts, it can help us with making trade-offs that are happier and more satisfying Mm -hmm. to our lives, Uh, particularly that feels more at home. I think that a sense of home has a lot to do with how you are treating yourself. Mm, Absolutely. And I feel like it speaks to the moon's rulership of cancer, which is a sign that's like often associated with the home, like home and hearth. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked a lot about the moon as like it relates to as you relate to it today, like, you know, with the references to Slenny, but I'm curious if there's anything else that you have uh, to say about that. And if like, you want to comment about like the moon's general importance in, you know, thinking astrologically or having an astrological practice. Oh man. Um, <laughs> so without a, intending to, uh, on a personal basis, on my, on the occult side of my practice, like I've always been involved with lunar goddesses it wasn't on purpose i feel like for me i won't speak for everyone that the divinity that wants my attention the divine that wants my attention chooses me and not the other way around Mm. um and that's how it's always kind of gone so for a while i had a very intense practice with hakate um who is another moon goddess Mm -hmm. um And it's ironic because like in my early 20s, when I was very atheistic and like wanted I I went through like this intense, like no religion, no spirituality, no nothing. Um, My my friends who were also like philosophical atheists like I was Mm -hmm. would uh, they gave me the nickname Artemis for like years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I was like, uh, I know a lot of baby witches, as we call them, people who are just starting like kind of like be like Artemis. It wasn't like that. I literally was like none of that. But they loved that uh, I really would defend people uh, within my little nerd community against jerks. And Mm. I would take in the newbies and be nice and friendly to them and things like that. And so Mm. that just kind of earned me that nickname. And now today my practice is uh, highly influenced by this relationship I have with the moon as I see her as Artemis, as well as another um, Irish deity who it's not a firm correspondence but uh it's definitely implied when you start to like translate the words used for irish astronomy which is the mm-hmm. kayach some people may read that as kalich 
that's not how you say it but that's okay there's a lot of different ways to say because there's like three different versions of gaelic or galaga that you can use uh i know that in like britain it would be uh the calyx mm-hmm. but you know she's this uh kind of hag figure and uh she's what i consider one of my patron divinities that i work with and i work with artemis very extensively and it's never been something I do on purpose because I, I tend to be kind of shy about that stuff just mm-hmm. as much as I am with humans where I'm like, you look cool, but I'm not going to say anything to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like they they come knocking and they come knocking and they come knocking. Even um, Medusa, who, you know, the kind of joke, the running joke is that I'm algal mommy because I have algal freaking everywhere in my chart. She actually, that star um, is not really a star. It's a It's a binary actually triple star system but binary eclipsing system particularly which had implications of the moon Mm -hmm. and so um even the egyptians like would choose things based off of the eclipsing system of this star for like if it was lucky or not relating back to fate which is something that the moon had a lot of um a lot of say over in the Mm -hmm. ancient world no matter what culture you go to Mm -hmm. um and so it just kind of keeps going like that, where it's like reflections and refractions of like, and here's another uh, face of the moon. Because I do believe that a lot of what we're seeing, we're seeing all these different gods and goddesses and divinities, is what the Egyptians saw, which is decans or faces. Mm-hmm. This idea that you cannot see divinity in its whole form, or it would mm. melt the meat off of your bones, right? Yeah. And so we see it as fractals. Mm-hmm. And I also believe that the fractal that we see is a reflection of culture, time, and place. Mm-hmm. And that's why we will get similar myths in different parts of the world that have distinct differentiations that are regional to where they came from. Mm-hmm. But you'll be like, oh, there's a moon goddess here, and here's a moon god here. And like, wow, mm-hmm. how many of these lunar gods and goddesses spin thread and weave? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. almost all of them. Isn't that weird? All around yeah. the world. Mm. and things like that so it's become a really central part and it has been a central part of my personal beliefs and practice um definitely my magical practice i i prioritize the moon over basically everything i i do more lunar elections for myself than just about anything else as far as like choosing time states and places Mm -hmm. um changing my practice name to moonhaven astrology was because the moon kept giving me dreams about you need to do this Mm. and it was like inside of this cave at the ocean this moonlight was streaming in and it was like okay fine (laughs) but um yeah it's it's central i think to my life i mean i wake up and do devotion with the moon every single day not just on mondays so Mm -hmm. it's it's a pretty resounding thing in my life yeah that's amazing. Thanks for sharing. I'm curious just because like I've actually started doing candle magic from I think your candle magic course. Uh, and I found that doing candle magic with the moon you has felt for me the most hit you over the head, kind of like, wow, this is working. Like the I I can see this manifesting kind of right before my eyes. And I'm just curious to hear a little bit about your experience of that, like perhaps in relation to doing magic with other other beings. Yes. So 
the moon, as, as you probably know, was considered the generatrix or the mediatrix mm-hmm. in ancient astrology. But that ancient astrology wasn't just for mundane matters. That was absolutely for magical matters. And when you get into it historically, that's pretty much de facto, again, around the world. We're like, we were looking to the moon because the moon would tell us like if things were going to come into being or not. Mm-hmm. And so utilizing lunar phases and lunar timing And if you want to get like really granular with it, there's so many other details about the moon that you can throw in there, Mm -hmm. um, such as, you know, whether it's close or far away from the earth, uh, Mm -hmm. the fact that the nodes, what the nodes kind of represent the lunar nodes is uh, if it's ascending or descending across the ecliptic. um, And like you can choose if it's rising, that's going to get more attention. And if it's descending, it's going to get less attention. You can combine all these elements and you can have a very robust, complete system of magic that is highly effective because mm-hmm. the moon has such a profound effect on an esoteric level as to whether something comes into being or not. And we can observe this in the mundane world. Uh, it's one of the first practices that um, I recommend to anyone who wants to get like deeper into astrology is like keep a, a journal of the moon. And see what's happening in your life as it crosses into various different houses in your chart when it's making aspects of different planets. You'll become an astrology pro in no time just following the moon. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit about, a little bit more later about your own personal observations around that. Um, but one thing I wanted to comment about that is it's it reminded me of um, I was actually taking like an Irish magic intro course recently. And as a part of that, I was like on their Facebook group. and it wasn't an astrological group. Like it was a, a magical group. And it's really interesting because like the teacher was talking about the moon and then was talking about other planets and stuff. And, and But people in the group were acknowledging how important the moon was for magic, but then they would be like, but astrology is bullshit. And it was just <laughs> re- a really interesting tension how like, I know that can be a thing in magical communities where there's like, this acknowledgement of the moon, but then there's a tension between like astrology and magic. Um, and I know that there, there can be, at least I've heard that there's that in the astrological community as well with magic, but I feel like now we have this kind of astrological magic thing that many people are into. So it's like maybe a little different now than in the past, but yeah. I think it's easier um, for the astrology community because Mm -hmm. we're getting deeper and revealing more of the actual history like we're getting interdisciplinary people like Kristen Mathis like we uh -hmm. were talking about earlier but also people like Eric Perdue and people who have like they have classics degrees and also they were like into witchy shit and like um they they have these multiple different areas of hyperfixation that now we get these incredible translations with more context than we've ever had mm-hmm. and because of that um the, the astrological community kind of has to concede the point right. um whereas like it used to actually be and this is something that um it's not talked about but i know that it's like some discrimination that like austin Coppick faced and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people would just be like no that's not real or oh that's silly in fact a lot of people don't know this but his book 36 faces like when it first came out, uh, was kind of relentlessly made fun of for a while. Mm. And now it's sold out and everyone's like, can I get a copy? Can I get a copy? Right. Can People I get a copy? Right? Like thousands of dollars on eBay to, to try and get a copy of 36 Faces. Listen, I'm just so happy that I happened to buy a copy of that book before I knew what it actually meant. I was just like, that mm-hmm. looks cool. And I like Austin's work. I'm just going to get that. Um, 
But yeah, it's one of those things where I find that the astrology community kind of has to concede because the more we learn about the actual religious mythological implications and what they meant, the more that we suddenly understand astrology better and it makes more sense. And it's like, oh, well, maybe this is an animate cosmos. Whereas I feel like what happens in the occult community, because I've straddled both for a long time now, yeah. um, I think it's intimidation, to be quite frank. And I also mm. know that most people who are into witchcraft, which is distinctly different than magic, yeah. um, they're like, I make my own rules and I do my own thing. Uh, mm. That's kind of the whole thing with why they're they're learning these systems is they want to kind of supersede fate in a way. They want to be able to kind of move things to their will. And uh, there's not as much consideration in some of those communities about how that impacts things outside of themselves. And so the idea of fate mm. that is maybe not as supersedable is A, a little scary, and yeah. B, very intimidating on the, the wavelength of like it takes so long to learn an occult practice and then you want to add astrology on top. Mm -hmm. And astrology, as you know, is a lifelong study. Right. But I do see a lot more people in the occult community knowing more about astrology than before. And I really credit people like um, Chris Brennan and his podcast and mm -hmm. Sam Reynolds and his uh, eminently approachable way of talking about astrology mm -hmm. for making it happen. Or gosh, our patron saint, Demetra George, mm -hmm. <laughs> for making some of the best books and lectures out there that are both like, we're getting depth, but it doesn't feel hard to understand. Right. It's very right. accessible in a way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to say, yeah, I think it's like the magical or like the, the impulse within maybe the magical or occult thing is like feeling disempowered and wanting to gain power. And as somebody that's known disempowerment, I have a lot of empathy for that and I can understand why the real you know it's like you can't have astrology in some sense without at least some kind of determinism you know maybe that's arguable but um you know there's this idea of like okay the sky in the moment that I was born has some effect on to a, a, an extreme you know people could say an extreme degree or to just some degree on how my life will unfold it's like, yeah, that can be a hard pill to swallow if what you really want is a sense of agency and power. That is absolutely what most people's motivation is for learning about witchcraft or magic, is to be able to kind of manipulate things to what you would like. That is finding a sense of power. I also think that a lot of people will mistaken that feeling when they really want connection. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking for something to be in relationship with, and maybe they don't jive with, you know, Mother Mary. Um, mm. Maybe that's a little too easy and vanilla for them to swallow. Maybe they didn't have a figure like that in their life. Maybe they don't aspire to that. Maybe they really do connect with something that's a little bit more spicy that has fangs. Um, and I think that that's something if more people would sit and think about this very mm -hmm. moon in the ninth house here, if more people would sit and think about what, what do I, what is spirituality? That's a great question. It's one that I ponder all the time. What's mm -hmm. the point of it? Yeah. And what do I need for my spirituality? And I would guess that most people, when they get past the feelings of disempowerment, um, they actually will realize it's connection. They want mm -hmm. connection. They want to feel connected in a world that feels eminently disconnected. And part of the disconnection is that feeling disempowerment because a lot of what we're trying to do on our own 
really we should be doing in a communal sense. We're not supposed to be doing it by ourselves. Yeah, I just want to say quickly, like, uh, we don't have to get super into this, but I, I really relate uh, as someone that was like, in my college years, very religious in um, like, and a, kind of like a mainstream religion. And like, just because of the institutional nature of that religion and the issues that came up around it, like, I just, I can't do that anymore. Like, I can't, like, I can't go back there. And so I feel like I have been searching for a long time for that sense of ritual that I got. You know, the feeling that came with that, something that's been repeated over time for thousands of years, uh, as well as the community and the connection. So I really appreciate you mentioning that because I do think that that is spot on. And that's, I think, what so many people are looking for. I think a lot of people are in the same shoes as you. So I appreciate you saying that um, there's mourning in that. And we also don't sit with our mourning very well. And so it kind of reminds me of speed dating in a sense where it's like they miss what they used to have. And so they just jump into something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that there's also a polarizing effect where like if you were previously in this super purity culture, punishing kind of thing, you you go and swing to the other side. I know I did that when I finally Mm -hmm. got through my atheist phase um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where I was like, Mm, definitely not going back to that ever but also Mm. like I'm too not like that and I should go to something that's like really spicy and kind of dangerous and edgy and (laughs) I want to feel like you know if there is a god out there I want to feel like I have someone who's my ally who's gonna like kind of step in or help me feel like powerful in that case Mm. and again bad motivations but this is what happens when we lack connection is that we kind of flail around Mm -hmm. wildly and asking those questions of like, what is it or what is the purpose or why does it exist? What do I want out of it? I think is so necessary right now because we are we are faced with a smorgasbord of options more than we've ever had. We've got access to everything for previously. Mm-hmm. You'd be lucky if you could find something at like Barnes and Noble, let alone like the Internet didn't exist, you know. Right. So it's an inundation. I also think there's that kind of image versus actual relationship. Mm-hmm. and kind of being honest with yourself like am I attracted to the image of something because I see these other people who are doing this that, and I think they're kind of cool or sexy or whatever and I want to mm-hmm. keep up with them I want to be like them or is it the development of your own soul yeah and it's okay if you just think someone's cool and you want to be like them I feel like that's legit too like that can lead to something perhaps deeper and I, I do think it speaks to what you're what you're talking about with like the desire for something spicy, quote unquote. And it's like, I think a lot of what we, we, you know, I'm just speaking in the abstract, like what we're given, the choices are like very aesthetic uh, and very aesthetic, excuse me. And like very, very much kind of a, they're not an affirmation of like our whole personhood. And I think that, you know, like it's really important for me to have, um, like a spiritual practice that really like acknowledge and affirmed that like I'm a person that has desires and that those desires desire can be good you know it's like it's not just something to deny and so I think that that's like the holistic kind of desire of acceptance is uh, for lack of a better term I think is something that 
is an attractive thing about these kind of alternative spiritual paths. I totally agree. 100%. Yeah. Wonderful. So yeah, let's talk about the sign of cancer and what it means for you. And I would love to hear what myth you prepared for us today uh, in relation to the moon and the sign of cancer. So classically, like the moon in cancer or cancer in general is the crab to the Greeks, right? Which gets kind of like a weird bit role. Um, basically, mm -hmm. when Hercules is um, fighting against Hydra, the crab comes out and tries to protect its friend, tries to help its friend. And so it nips at Hercules' uh, heels mm -hmm. and Hercules crushes it. And then Hera's like, I'm really impressed with you trying to help my, uh, you know, agenda here against Hercules here, you can go in the sky. And that's essentially the whole thing about uh, the crab, which is absolutely wild because to the Egyptians, this was way more important. The crab motif does go back in time. You do see that. Um, and actually it kind of sways between like a turtle and a crab. Mm -hmm. So um, same kind of idea of like aquatic creatures that can also go back on land though. And that was right. really interesting. But the Egyptians believe that Cancer and Capricorn, if you ever look at them in the sky, even today, they're very dim. And this is really, really notable, especially because they are very close to along the ecliptic, which is the pathway of the sun. And to the Egyptians, the sun was the sun god. And so right. he would die and then be reborn again every single day. And his pathway was the supreme pathway. It's like the red carpet in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so those constellations along that pathway tended to be quite important because they also would rise and set, et cetera, et cetera. Cancer and Capricorn, even all the way back then, were pretty dim. They were not very bright. And you can imagine when we did not have light pollution, the implications of this, particularly when we're making interpretations based off the appearance of things and their various qualities, they started to see, because these guys were rising, Cancer and Capricorn, during the solstices, Cancer mm -hmm. during summer solstice, Capricorn during winter solstice. They saw them as gateways. And Cancer was the gateway of life. And mm -hmm. Capricorn was the gateway of the gods or the gateway of the dead, basically. It was mm -hmm. this idea that those who had died, their souls would go through the gateway of the dead. And those who were coming back into the world or the new souls would be born through the gateway of life. And the major star, the brightest star there is uh, Acubens. Mm -hmm. And Acubens was... Uh, considered to be the sacred scarab beetle, which was the mm -hmm. guardian at the gateways of life. Mm -hmm. And it was also the scarab beetle that would come and get into the sun god's chair after he had died and wait for his resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. So you see the scarab beetle used as iconography everywhere in um, various parts of Egypt, right? We see the scarab kind of in all the places. But then I wanted to go beyond this because, uh, yeah, you can kind of look all this up. I wanted to, I wanted to go into a little bit more of an esoteric thing. Um, most people don't know this about me, but my own practice for however long it's existed has really segged into and been a folk magic practice that I've had now for nearly 10 years. And so I love looking at folklore and folk tales and things like that. And what's interesting about it, what I love the most about folk tales is that they are always, they are indigenous knowledge. Mm. It's just the same with like when we're looking at indigenous myth uh, from people who are still indigenous to this day, they're imparting knowledge about the land or about the place that they're from. That's really important. Seasonality, uh, mm -hmm. when to plant, when to harvest. I know that 
one of the big motifs for the Kayach in Scotland, particularly, is that you would give her part of your hunt because mm. that would bless you for the rest of the winter to make sure that you never went hungry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would also fill her flint box because she had a lot to do with the fire, right? Mm-hmm. And if you had fire in your hearth or not. So if you didn't fill her flint box, then she would uh, make sure that you were going to basically starve and be cold for all of winter, mm-hmm. right? And so we've got these ideas from folklore that I think are really, really important. And the one that really stood out to me is actually my favorite uh, folklore from when I was a kid. Little background here. My parents were hyper-religious and all of my Disney movies were edited and some were just like straight up not allowed. Mm-hmm. Not allowed at all. Um, and one of them was Sleeping Beauty. But guess what? I had a babysitter who did not know that. And she brought that <laughs> movie to my house and I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I had ever seen a witch in a movie. Also, mm-hmm. I was not that into <laughs> Aurora. I was super into Maleficent because Maleficent was badass. I mean, she becomes a dragon, which, by the way, is part of the motif here of the moon. What do you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. But the original myth was not three fairies. The original myth is that there were 13. Oh, interesting. And 13 is the number of moon cycles we have in a year. The 13th was not invited to the coronation of the princess when she's a baby, the blessing of the princess, the saying of the princess. And so this 13th, which actually represents the dark moon, mm-hmm. um, lays a curse on the princess that she will die by pricking her finger on a spindle. But she happened to be kind of like upset that she wasn't invited and showed up and interrupted everybody and she gave this curse. And then she was like, I'm out, takes her you know, little demon legion with her. And the 12th one had not given her blessing yet, her gift. Mm. And so she reverses it and says, she will not die. She will sleep. Mm. So this is also uh, astrological as well as lunar. But even uh, the placing of this spindle, this spinning wheel, is a lunar motif that is seen everywhere. Because the moon had a lot to do with this idea of spinning a fate just like the Morai, just like the Grier, just like the Norns, um, you find that almost every single lunar goddess, which is quite a few um, in just Greece alone, it they have a distaff or a spindle with them because they are there to be the weavers of fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we see her prick her finger, this is both the spinning of fate, but also the pausing of fate. And it's talking about a cycle of time because she sleeps for a hundred years, which is considered to be completion of a cycle in European folklore. Mm. Um, And this whole thing is lunar. The whole thing is lunar. Most people don't know this. This whole thing is just a giant lunar parable talking Mm. about the cycles of life, death, rebirth, as well as uh, there's some stuff here around, you know, uh, harvest and planting and things like that. But it's one of my absolute favorites. Most people don't know the original tale. I would say it still holds with mm-hmm. three fairies and Maleficent because mm-hmm. you have the three major, uh, what we'd say like lunar, when we see the moon, right? And then you've got the dark moon, which is what the 13th fairy was supposed to represent, this idea of, of death or the final cycle. And the fact that she rises again is actually this kind of uh, corollary with how the moon always comes back. The moon is going to come back after her cycle. Even the the age that she's at, 15, when she pricks her finger, Mm 
-hmm. has to do with halfway through the lunar cycle. So everything is encoded with lunar symbolism from beginning to end of this folktale. And it's one of my favorites for very nostalgic Cancer Moon reasons. Wonderful. Amazing. I feel like I'm, I don't know if I've watched Sleeping Beauty, actually. So I'm gonna have to get on my Disney Plus uh, account this weekend or something and and watch it because they have all the old Disney movies on there. Let um, me nerd out for a minute. You need yeah, to please. watch this because like Disney, this was his like final movie. Like it was his swan song. I love mm-hmm. using that term. <laughs> and he wanted to make something that he could set to Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Suite. Mm. And so he actually completely altered his animation style and created incredibly new uh uh, technology specifically for this movie and it's highly underrated for how much effort he put in it's absolutely gorgeous down mm. to the fact this is wild they had already drawn aurora the main princess character but the woman who played aurora that they they had bring in for a voice because they're very particular about this they didn't uh usually choose actresses that they could see they would choose models and they would model their their drawings of her she just happened to look like aurora it was almost like oh, the wow. whole thing from beginning to end was faded in a way, mm. but it's absolutely stunning. Obviously, Maleficent turning into a dragon represents eclipses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. So I highly recommend. Uh, I'm not a huge Disney movie fan. I'm definitely Team Studio Ghibli here, but this mm. is one of the ones I make an exception for because there's layers to it, and it's absolutely stunning. Does Studio Ghibli have like a Sleeping Beauty alternative or? No, 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 no. What I meant was like, I like the nuance of Studio Ghibli because one thing Mm -hmm. I find difficult about Disney movies, especially as I'm now an adult, is that kind of black and white storytelling where like the hero is always the hero and the villain is always the villain. And there's kind of this inhuman quality to that Mm -hmm. way of telling myth. Whereas like Studio Ghibli is like, nothing is that clear cut, Mm -hmm. right? Every hero is flawed. In fact, I don't know that we'd really call them a hero in the Western sense. And every villain is incredibly human to where you can't just be like, and that's the bad guy. Mm. Yeah, there is this really like interesting dream element to Studio Ghibli films. I've only seen a few of them, but I feel like um, there's like haunting beauty to them. And then I feel like for both of the ones that I've watched, which I think is one is Totoro and the other is Castle in the Sky, if I'm remembering the title correctly. By the end, I'm just kind of like, what did I watch? But not in a way where I'm like, what the fuck did I just watch? It's just kind of like, I'm just kind of like, whoa. Like uh, that sense of like uh, quiet that comes with witnessing something beautiful where you're just like, it's almost like a moment of wisdom, a moment of contemplation where I'm like, I'm not quite sure what the what the lesson to take away is or what the message. And that's really interesting having been brought up on Disney movies and what you just said about the kind of black and white, like really digestible moral, moral narratives or stories that like were kind of fed in relation to this kind of more nuanced, abstract, open-ended, uh, interpretive messages that we're getting from these other, these other animated films. I highly recommend for your Jupiter and Cancer, you need to watch Spirited Away. Okay. You need to do it. I think we started, we started watching it. Uh, that one might have been like, I was like, this might be a little too weird, but I'm not sure. I Maybe we watched it all the way through. I'll have to, I'll have to see. That's the one where they like go, he, he goes to like the, it's like a, 
I don't know, it's like a amusement park or something, but it's inhabited by like ghosts. Yes. So it's Shihiro, the protagonist will say, I don't know if we can call again, not sure about hero, the protagonist Mm -hmm. of the story. Uh, Her family is hungry. They see this old kind of um, amusement park that used to be like a big thing is kind of like going to the spirit bathhouse was an amusement park thing, but it's closed down. They're walking in. And she's the only one who seems to detect that, which is interesting. Her parents are like completely oblivious to it and they start eating the food there. Mm. And that's actually, again, a very typical folkloric motif of like, you can't eat the food of the spirits or you will be kind of sucked into their world. She doesn't, but she gets stuck there because she's waiting for her parents and she ends up having pigs, right? They get turned into pigs. It's awesome. <laughs> um, and she ends up having to go and inhabit the, the, the parallel spirit world in this bathhouse. Mm. And it's a, a beautiful coming of age story because she is honestly the worst protagonist at the beginning. I cannot stand beginning of the movie Shihiro. I'm like, I want to smack mm. this child. She is whiny and entitled and rude and everything but by the end she has really stepped into her own being she's found her courage she understands etiquette not just etiquette on a human level but etiquette on a spirit level which i think Mm. is really fascinating and Mm, more particularly what you're seeing with the kind of weird stuff is shinto everything that is kind of in ghibli that we don't fully understand is just cultural shintoism that Hayao Miyazaki, who shout out my favorite Jupiter and Taurus person of all time, <laughs> he you know he's always incorporating all these elements of the natural world and the spirit world as if they are seamless. It's almost like magical realism in all of his films, mm. and that's why there is no clear good or bad because in Shintoism, a demon could be someone that helps you out, mm. and a god or a spirit could actually be quite cruel to you. And there's this great nuance and it's always connected back into the natural world. It's incredibly animistic. So those are my top ones. I'm a total, cool. again, you can see my cancer moon here. I'm like, I've watched them all 300 times. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sleeping Beauty has a very special part in my heart as far as a Disney film is concerned. Wonderful. And yeah, so what does it mean for you to have your moon in cancer? Can you tell us a little bit more about like the nuances of that and your experience of that? Yeah, I think it's interesting. The The first thing that always gets brought up is uh, stereotypically like the crybaby moon. I just want a whole bunch of people to meet a bunch of cancer moon people. That's not going to happen. We won't cry in front of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea of kind of being uh, the crab means that I'll go into my own little shell. I won't even cry in front of my partners most of the time. I'll go mm-hmm. and find a place by myself. It's a very cathartic, ugly cry. I'm definitely not a pretty crier. It's like an ugly kind of cry thing, but that's because it has to be a complete thing. I believe it has Mm. to be something where there's no uh, inhibition. And I think that cancer has this huge focus on safety, Mm. safety as a feeling of comfort in a way. And that includes creating safety for other people being a safe space. Mm. Um, It's funny because I think that's a that's like the number one stereotypical thing, but you don't hear about everything else. That and food. And I will say, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I I was super naturally good at cooking basically instantly. I don't know how it works. I think it's because I just like good food. But it's mm-hmm. not a huge focus in my life, which is interesting. In fact, if I don't have to feed other people, I literally could just eat, this is not a joke, oatmeal until I die. Mm-hmm. And oats are, you know, uh, food of the moon. So I guess there's that. But you know, I think there's a real quality here around 
wanting to care for others mm -hmm. and wanting to create comfort and wanting there to be safety. I think safety mm -hmm. is such a huge word here. That being said, there's also a thrilling kind of element here. And I think it's this idea of wanting to understand maybe the limits of our world as well as our body. Mm -hmm. um, now, the minute that it gets uncomfortable, we're going to be like, peace. <laughs> mm -hmm. This did not feel good. I'm done. I think that's a, I call it moon privilege. It's a weird thing. But when you've got that domicile moon, the minute that something feels off my body, my body is very loud about mm. it, extremely loud about it. And that means that I tend to actually take care of things health-wise rather quickly, mm -hmm. rather than like waiting for something really awful to happen. Um, whereas I watch a lot of people and it's kind of some, that's why I started making the lunar rhythms <laughs> reading as I was watching my partners and friends and stuff and I'd watch them push themselves and they'd had signs the whole time. I'd be like, you don't think that maybe that's too much? Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, no, no, it's not that. It's not because I ate that thing or it's not because I didn't sleep or it's not blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. um, and then sure enough, they'd be like, you know, I think that maybe I need to sleep more. <laughs> and started to kind of mystify me, like, how is so many people not tapped in in that way? Mm. And then I started to really think about that on a personal level. I was like, you have moon privilege, Amaya. <laughs> that's just so, that's never even occurred to you that someone wouldn't do that now i will push myself knowing i'm pushing myself yeah. i'll push myself and be like I, especially if there's like a, a need to uh show up for others mm -hmm. that's where i'll definitely push myself usually beyond my own limits if there's like a, a major responsibility thing which i think is saturn opposite my moon um i will completely and totally ignore my own needs in order to fulfill mm -hmm. some sort of responsibility particularly if it affects more than myself and i think that mm -hmm. that's uh really the crux there is there's this kind of reflective quality with cancer mm. and there's a sensitivity with this moon to what's going on around you with everybody else and mm -hmm. in that way it can be like a mommy you know it's kind of a mom moon where mm -hmm. you feel responsible for those around you and mostly because you want to generate life and i do think this is where we do see that kind of connection with like acubens and the cancer uh kind of constellation is this idea of wanting to generate life mm. and with it being in my ninth house how it's shown up uh in my early life is the people who saved me from my own demise <laughs> were typically teachers mm. um they were the most healing and wonderful people um that i ever came into contact with uh, art and literature teachers, particularly. It also gives me this kind of weird thing that I've been trying to shake where I want to be like uh, John Keating from Dead Poets Society when I teach people. Uh -huh. <laughs> I want you to eminently believe in yourself. And that's such a supernatural character. And it's a lot of pressure to put on oneself mm -hmm. to show up and be like, no, the world is beautiful and you are too. And I want you to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. But that's because that's what I needed when I was a kid. Yeah. And um, I feel like there's a real thing about paying that forward. Mm. There is definitely a kind of, I always say this to my clients in so many, for so many different reasons, but I'm like, the body is the tuning fork here. Mm. The body is the place of 
much more information than you're going to glean in an intellectual way. It will seg into intellectual curiosity. You do see that a lot with the moon, like the same base word of memory and mind comes from moon. There's mm -hmm. a cyclical idea of time and cycles uh, and sinking into it. And there is a sensitivity, but it's not one that's going to make itself known. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a crab is squishy, but you don't know that until you break it open. My favorite meme is where uh, there's that crab and someone hands it a butter knife mm -hmm. and then it's swinging it around. <laughs> That's the kind of joke I have about cancer in general, especially with like the moon or Mars there is like you probably aren't going to fight your own fights, but you sure as hell are not going to hurt my people. Mm, yeah. I will pick up your knife and I will be the defender of you. But as for me, I'm probably going to this is where I do think I'm a big baby. Like if I'm in trouble or if something's wrong with me, I will kind of fall apart because there's a weird thing. I'm totally on board and ready to tap into like my courage and bravery for the people around me. Mm. But for myself, this is where I just kind of crumple and I'm like, I can't do it. Mm. That person's so mean and I don't even know what to say to them kind of thing. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, but man, you better not say something mean to my my family. I, mm. I will. Nah, that's not a good place. Yeah, it's so interesting how the ninth house significations are coming so strongly for you, where, you know, you talked about the importance of teachers and that can be associated with the ninth house and your own sense of like how you want to be a teacher. Um, but also talking about like, you know, if we think about the ninth house as the like the joy of the sun and the associations with worldview and thinking in the way that the sun can be associated with thinking. It's very interesting to to hear you talk about like knowledge and information and the development of wisdom through the body and what comes through the body rather than kind of like, you know, what comes through the moon rather than what comes through the sun. You know, it wasn't always like that. Mm. And I love that you just saw that. And I'm also like, oh no, <laughs> Scorpio rising is like retract. Mm. <laughs> but um, when I was I'm younger- sorry. I, we can pretend I don't see you. <laughs> we can pretend, I'll just go behind my, <laughs> my little Scorpio mask. Um, when I was younger, I think I got told I was sensitive a lot because I was, mm. I was sensitive. And I mean like sensitive, not just an emotional way, but like I could sense the room temperature, like what was going on with people. Mm. It would make me very like, I'm still like this. I can get tense or suddenly try to like change things if I'm around people that feel a certain way. Mm. Um, I notice things a lot of people will completely miss. I'm very in tune with the environment. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like where I work has to be a specific way, where I sleep. I, I literally cannot work and sleep in the same place. Right. Mm. And I'm sensitive to foods. Like I, I have such a midnight chart that um, I am literally allergic to the sun. I break into hives that mm. are, are horrible from being exposed to the sun. So like I'm a very lunar person, probably overly lunar because my moon's also like out of bounds and stuff. And because of that, I got more validation uh, from being book smart because I loved mm -hmm. reading books and sinking into fantasy, which is also actually a pretty lunar thing to want to like go into a fantasy world or sink somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. And I loved science because my that one of the few like happy things I have with my mom was like going outside and being in nature. And so yeah. I was just like a kind of nerdy, artistic kid who loved mm -hmm. being outside all the time. And I would get a lot of recognition for being smart. Mm. 
And I didn't get that much recognition for being like in a positive way for being sensitive. I got a lot of like, Amaya, you're being too sensitive again. Mm-hmm. And so I leaned really hard on that and kind of went through a period. And I've, I've talked to other cancer moons who go through this where like they were told they were too sensitive for a lot of their childhood, which is like, that's our superpower is actually that acuity. So it's such mm-hmm. a sad thing to shut it down. But we do. We will typically shut it down for a period of time in our early adulthood, because we've been so ingrained with this idea of like, if we show any kind of emotion or if we talk about discomfort or anything like that, um, that somehow it's bad or we're not worthy or whatever. And I just kind of ruled my world by intellect alone. Mm -hmm. And what I started to realize as I got older is knowledge is kind of useless if there's no experience. Like you can sit there and read a book all day, but have you actually gone out and seen what happens to the tides when the moon is doing certain things with the sun? Mm. Because that's not, that's not the same thing. And you won't remember it nearly as well if you don't have that lived in body experience, which is why this kind of idea of separation of like, no, the moon is the body and Mercury is the mind. First of all, our idea of both of them come from Thoth and Thoth, Mm was a moon god so um and it's interesting we separate them out and i do think it's good to have separate functions here in a lot of ways but we forget that the mind was originally the gut Mm. our first brain was the gut so that idea Mm. of gut feelings which is highly attached to like cancer and scorpio and these kind of watery placements that the moon takes a lot of uh comfort in is Mm. the first place that we get information from and we don't understand it anymore because we have separated ourselves from our animal selves we've decided Mm. to completely forget that we are animals it's interesting how when you get into things like occultism and magic and stuff even art you need to respect that that's actually how you're going to be able to find whatever power it is that you're seeking but also genuine connection is something that you feel in the body before you hear it in your brain And so this became a real kind of like uh, obsession of mine. Mm. Um, Just before my Saturn return, I was trying to get back into a creative practice. I hadn't created anything in like 11 years. And I realized like I could read. I love reading. I probably have more books on art than anyone needs to know. Mm -hmm. I could read all day about how to draw. But until I actually did it, it Mm. did not matter. Mm. So there's a real thing here for me about like the tactile quality of experience as teacher Mm. of the body being the tuning fork and the alembic in which we actually go beyond just a shallow understanding of something to a deeply embodied experience where now it can kind of go into that alembic and eventually, if we're lucky, become wisdom. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was just being reminded of the fact that I grew up in New York City in the speech community. And so I literally could hear the waves uh, breaking on the shore from my childhood window, you know, and that's like, I, I think I say that because that is a really important part of how I relate to water and sound and um i think it's important for us to acknowledge the difference that we can have with other people you know like you you spoke to 
you know, reading about the tides, but it's like, what does the sound of the crashing waves mean to you? And that's maybe you don't, maybe you grew up by a river. And so your sound of water is different. And that means your relationship with water is going to be different. And I feel like I'm trying to speak to, to something port, something important about like my own spirituality, but um, I think it's just important to, to, for us all to kind of acknowledge our different experiences of these things and how that can inform our viewpoint, but also inform the way that we can move forward. Absolutely. Right before we got on our call, I was thinking about that mind-body separation, mm -hmm. right? And it's interesting because the mind develops because of the body. Mm. So how you grew up and your experiences will change the way your mind works. And we know mm -hmm. this because, I mean, <laughs> not to go too dark here, but childhood trauma will really fuck a body up, but it also really changes your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, makes your nervous system really turned on to an extent that it's almost impossible to turn it off. Mm -hmm. And that's experience. It's not something that, again, we come back to that idea of like, I can't intellectualize it. You had to experience something pretty terrible. And then it changes the way that you're able to focus, mm -hmm. communicate, deal with conflict, deal with happiness. Yeah. I don't think we talk about that a lot. And so this idea of like our experiences, we will often throw them out the window for some sort of like, hmm, how do I put it nicely? It's a word that came up in a friend's story of mine, but I'm going to use it in a way that I think makes more sense. It's like we're monocropping mm. intelligence. Mm. Like there's only one. And I think that it's really important. This is why getting in touch with your own natal moon is so vital. How you intuit things and puzzle them out and experience them is not just vital to you. Mm -hmm. Our world needs this fractalization. Yeah. And when we dismiss that and we try to become one uniform idea of what is intelligent, what is sentient, what is this, what is that, we are actually moving against the very basis of creation itself. And that is the variety mm. and the beauty in the variety. You grew up next to the ocean you know what the sound of that ocean particular for that area sounds like and probably the various different seasons mm -hmm. i didn't grow up next to the ocean i wish i had because i really almost went into marine science when i was younger but i did grow up next to a lot of like lakes and rivers and creeks and i have a real fondness for the sound of something babbling mm -hmm. trinkling over rocks to the extent that like my little not podcast. I don't know what I'm calling. I'm calling it Bogwalk Talks. I'm just making them randomly for my mailing uh -huh. list. At the end, we're, we sit back at the same place where it makes the sound that reminds me of my childhood because mm. it's so soothing to me. And maybe it's meaningless to everybody else, but I feel like I gain some wisdom every time I sit next to that body. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask quickly um, if like for the cancer moons out there who are listening who are resonating with that feeling of like oh yeah I was told I was really sensitive when I was a kid too and I'm finding it hard to touch back into that now that I'm an adult further what have you like if you have any suggestions for those people for like tangible things they can do to kind of get back in touch with that mm, well 
I mean, the first thing I recommend is vagus nerve therapy. <laughs> mm. I think that's a big thing is that part of the reason I know for myself, I can't speak for anybody else, that I was told I was sensitive is because uh, I had a lot going on in my childhood. Don't want to go into all that, but there was a lot of trauma and stuff. Mm. And it became a raw nerve. Yeah. And I think that if you had parents or um, caregivers who were dismissive of how you felt, it's very important that you reparent yourself. And for me, the best way that I found that was with vagus nerve work. So that would be the first thing is like, if you can get yourself, there's a lot of like online, um, it's basically, it's a kind of somatic therapy that particularly helps you retune the, the vagus nerve or the vagus nerve which is very important, I find, because what happens is we can be overly sensitive because we're so wide open. There is this kind of thing about the moon being this receptive vessel of light, but that also means that you're receptive to the things around you. Right. And that can be environmental, it can be food, it can be people, it can be just about anything to the degree that like, I don't watch certain types of media or listen to certain types of music because it does have a jarring effect on my nervous system. And so doing something like vagus nerve work is really, I think, very powerful. If you can't do that, breath work, I think, is very accessible for everybody. For me, it has come down to understanding that vulnerability is not a weakness. And I did mm. that by kind of traveling at the speed of trust, mm. which is to say, like, first of all, don't do this with everybody. That mm. is like, that's the super highway to hell for cancers. Okay, <laughs> There are going to be people who don't respect it, who don't deserve that kind of vulnerability from you. But if you've got a partner or a friend who you feel super safe and comfortable with, first of all, they probably already sense in a way the kind of tides that you have. Like, I don't talk a lot about um, what I'm feeling when I'm upset at this point, mm -hmm. but I had to go through a period where I had to almost over explain myself to my partners because I could wallop so well that when I finally like would burst like a volcano, which so many mm -hmm. people have this problem, yeah. um, they'd just be like, what is happening? <laughs> what is happening right now? Why didn't you tell me two weeks ago? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, cancers, we're kind of renowned for our memories. So it kind of builds. And so what I would say, start with someone who you already have that feeling of trust with. And you can start with something really simple. You don't have to start with something big. I think that's really important, but you need to start creating new experiences. Because again, the body is the tuning fork here. And so you're going to have to go through a number of positive experiences where you are vulnerable with someone that is worthy of that level of trust and intimacy. And it starts to kind of retune you. And if you have a negative experience coming back to a remembering, we're very empathetic. That's one of our key traits. That person may not have been at, uh, in a place of capacity for you where they could actually hold mm -hmm. that space for you. And that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It also doesn't mean that they're purposefully trying to hurt you. And that's something I always kind of come back to. It might even be valuable to ask at the beginning, like, do you have the space and capacity to talk about something that I'm a little sensitive about? Mm -hmm. I, and I also think it's good to name what you want because every chart's different. I'm not just a moon in cancer. I'm also an Aquarius sun, Aquarius Mercury. And I've probably thought of all the solutions and I do not want help with solutions. Mm. That is not what I want. Yes. What I want is just to whine. I just want to, I want to vent. I want to put my emotions out there. I want someone to tell me it's okay. I want someone to hold that space. I'm a very verbal processor when I'm in a healthy space. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really want someone to help me solve something. 
you may be different though and i think it's important to think about what do i want or need right yeah. now because if you go into it and you don't make that statement and you haven't asked if someone has capacity and all that fun stuff what's going to happen is when you don't get the reaction or response that you want you're going to take that as a sign that this is not worth doing mm -hmm. and th that's not how it actually goes yeah. People can't read your mind. They don't know what you, you can read a situation. Cancer mm -hmm. moons can read a situation. And I know if people want a solution or if they just want me to pat their back and tell them it's going to be okay. Right. But not everybody's like that. Most people aren't. And especially mm -hmm. if you're really good at masking those emotions, you're really good at putting up that wall. This may be something that they're totally unprepared for. So you need to help a little bit. And that I think it's important to say that doesn't cheapen what's happening between the two of you. Yeah. Right. But that would be my advice. Move at the speed of trust. I also recommend the vagus nerve work or some breath work. It will help tremendously. I know that Diana Rose Harper, our favorite person, mm -hmm. did a workshop with Mars and breath work. And I think at some point she'll probably put out the recording. So mm -hmm. and it's eminently more affordable than going and talking to a breath work uh, mm -hmm. therapist if you cannot afford it. So. Those would be my two top recommendations. Maybe the third one would be doing something creative. Mm, cool. Yeah, I will say that Nathaniel Hottership, Diana's, uh, and my friend runs uh, an organization called Breathwork, Breathwork for Recovery, and Diana collaborated with Nathaniel. I actually go basically every week to his Breathwork group, and so I'll link that in the show notes as well. It's been a really great resource for me. The other thing I want to do is just give a shout out to this podcast called Multi Amory. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they it's a podcast about polyamory. And um, they had an episode on this thing called Radar, which is like almost like a relationship business meeting. It's not as boring as I'm making it sound. It's actually a really cool practice. But they talk about this thing called the Triforce of Communication. Sometimes I feel like in polyamory circles, there can be the weirdest vocabulary that people have, like compersion i'm just like what are these words but anyway it's just the idea of what you're talking about where which i've kind of had to institute in my own relationships because like you i absolutely basically never want advice unless i ask for it um i like want to be heard that's mostly what i want i want i want someone to like hear what i have to say and so it's basically just like do you want advice do you want to be heard or i always forget the third one but there's like and just being very explicit like this is what I want from what I'm saying. And um, because it's likely that your partner has a default for what they, the way that they respond. And that might not be the way that you want to receive, but that does not mean that like your relationship is doomed or that person is the wrong person for you or anything like that. It could literally just mean being explicit in communication about like, I know that you have a tendency to give advice I don't want advice. Thank you. I just want you to, I just want to say this thing to you and I want you to hear it and offer me some empathy or what have you. Um, so I just want to suggest that resource for people as well, because it's been, it's been really helpful for me. Okay. So yeah, let's move on to talking a little bit about the relationship of your moon and your sun and how lunar phase plays into your experience of your moon. Oh, well, my moon and sun are almost opposite each other it's actually within orb i do count it i have a nice t-square between my sun my moon and my mars mm. um and that's why it's always been a battle between like i can be really heady i have an air sun and literally if, because of 
the weird way I was born, I was like a 24, 25 hour dry birth. I got stuck in the birth canal. My mom wanted me to be born on um, George Bush Sr.'s second inauguration. <laughs> and it didn't happen because I have Mars and Taurus. And I was like, like that's I'm not, Satan. <laughs> I'm not doing that. No. And um, yeah, I have what I call the T square of don't tell me what to do. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's funny because that's where you see like the the sun is very kind of heady and can even be very friendly when I feel up to it. I think that's the key. It is down in the fourth house, so I have to feel up to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas like I have this very wet, out of bounds, nearly full moon. Um it does like friends, but it's also socially anxious. <laughs> mm. Most of the time, I will be the one who kind of lurks in the corner and is watching everybody. I'm like, we're all having a good time. I didn't say hello to anyone, but I'm having a good time. <laughs> and I think because uh, I had training from an early age, my son rules my midheaven in performance. It makes it look like I'm much more social and outgoing than I am. Mm -hmm. But um, anyone who meets me in person will testify to how I will cling to you like a little crab if we're in a group <laughs> of people that I don't know. And I will just be like, you are my only friend and I only want to talk to you because I don't know these people. Um, so there's kind of like this thing where I have to flip on the charm for things like uh, podcasts and what have you. Mm. It is an interesting duality to have this like kind of super heady, almost overly logical, very Saturnian side of myself. And then like the yeah, I love watching Studio Ghibli films on repeat. Give me my comfort foods and my blanky moon, right? Mm. <laughs> also kind of like my son wants to really logic and like see all the receipts for everything. And my moon is like, we don't need that. Mm. You just know. Which because I was kind of super invalidated about that for most of my upbringing, I've had to really learn how to not invalidate myself. Mm -hmm. When it comes to that, like you have a gut feeling, just go with it. You don't have to explain yourself. No one needs to know. You don't even need to know. Just follow it. Right. Right. Because truly in my chart, my moon is the gift. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, as far as moon phase is concerned, I mean, I have a waxing gibbous moon. It's super waxing, like a few more degrees. And we have it's totally actually, full. it's totally full. And because of that, I do feel this thing, uh, Sam Reynolds kind of teases me about it all the time. It's uh, no matter how much I've prepared, I never feel prepared moon. Because <laughs> mm. it's constantly almost full. <laughs> right. And there's just kind of striving here. And one of the things I do like about it is the striving to constantly master or self-improve. Mm -hmm. Because I never feel like I am the master of anything, which I think can be a burden sometimes because I can be very good at things and completely oblivious to the fact that I'm good at things. Mm -hmm. I have to have other people tell me that it's good, which is a very typical thing. I think that's where the sun and the moon aren't quite in that aspect. Mm -hmm. They don't quite see each other because I will not be cognizant of it until someone's like, that's really good. And I'll be like, yeah. what? Really? All I see is everything I need to change about this. I also think that that nervous quality can lead me to some interesting breakthroughs because like I was sitting here doing research all week long of like, I bet everyone's done every lunar myth ever told by the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> like, what am I going to talk about? Like, so I don't want to be like a, a repetitious person. Right. And like, mm -hmm. that can be really a nice push. It is out of bounds. So it can be over the top about that. And mm. something that like when I finally opened my books, I was so nervous. And I was like, Sam, no one's going to book with me and I'm not ready. And he was like, 
in 10 years, you will not be ready. Go do it, right? Yeah. And so there can be a real thing here about where I'm constantly trying to prepare mm-hmm. and not doing the thing. And that's why I'm so like invested mm-hmm. in how do I do the thing? How do I get embodied? How do I have the experience instead of just constantly being in preparation mode? Like this is not an SAT. This is life. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I have an out of bounds moon as well. And maybe for the listeners, if you could just give a, you know, just quick explanation of like what it means for um, the moon or a planet to be out of bounds and a little bit more about how you experience that in your own life so an out of bounds moon is when well any planet any planet out of bounds is when they have traveled really far away from the ecliptic far Mm -hmm. farther than they do on average because no planet is just sitting there (laughs) rotating in a perfectly straight line across the pathway of the sun right So they're all kind of wobbling up and down. And the moon is the one that actually wobbles the highest and the lowest up and down the ecliptic. And so when you've got an out of bounds moon, it will change or exaggerate or sometimes the opposite. It will completely dampen it down in a way that you don't expect. Like I've got a friend who's got an out of bounds moon that is in the opposite direction from my out of bounds moon. And it's almost like so reserved that Mm. (laughs) um, it's, 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 negligibly noticeable as far as like what part of their personality kind of sticks out and it's like super prominent in their chart you have to get to know Mm -hmm. them on a very personal that kind of need for intimacy cancer has comes really really strong with this one where you have to get to know them really well to understand what's going on whereas like for me I learned the art of masking but when I was a child would I be capable of that absolutely not If I was upset, I was really upset. I mean, I was kind of like known for like when I finally got upset because it took a long time. I would have epic meltdowns. I did not have tantrums like other kids where they get over it in an hour or two. Mm. I could have a tantrum for like 12 hours straight, like complete emotional dysregulation. Um, It doesn't go that way now. Mm -hmm. I find that that's more of my Mars is my Mars is in Taurus and like it doesn't, it takes so long for it to get mad. Then when it does, it's like the Hulk, but it's like the Hulk yeah. for like an hour or two and then it's done. Right. Uh-huh. But my moon now it's more like that sensitivity is like dialed up to 300. Mm. So an example was recently, I went to Galway for the first time, despite living here for a, a while now, I haven't like gone and visited much of Ireland. And so I finally went to Galway with my partner and I thought I was going to love it because I had seen and read all this stuff. The minute I got off the bus, it felt like all the life got sucked out of me. Mm. Like my energy was gone. Mm. It was really crowded. It felt extremely commercial. didn't feel particularly Irish, mm-hmm. especially compared to the very rural parts of Ireland that I live in that are actually, I realized now like, oh, we are very Irish here. Uh-huh. Um, and I did not enjoy it, but also uh, I think it's because I felt like everyone around me was almost like a black hole trying to like consume. And Mm. that was dialed up to like a thousand. So like we went out to eat. I barely remember what I ate. Uh, Mm. It took us finding a body of water, this beautiful river, the river Korob, for me to be like, okay, I can breathe. Okay. (laughs) And it also made me want to just crawl up into my shell so hard that like most of the time I'm a very polite person I will constantly be like excuse me or pardon me things like that I was just like getting rammed into by people because it's very crowded that day and like I said nothing like I was just like so inward and Mm. I'm also a very observant person usually and I was like nope 
beeline to the, I didn't even know where we were going. I was just like, let's go this way. And I found mm-hmm. water and I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of calmness in all this. This is too much. So I feel like my nervous system is probably amped up to a degree that is beyond just, I already have trauma stuff. And then it, it mm. goes beyond that because it's been like that since I was a kid. It made me very, very spiritually sensitive from like the age of two onward. Mm. Um, and that was a really scary sensation when I was a child. Mm. Um, not so much now. I finally got some training and help. I think I was the thing incorrect people around me for that time period to help me with what was going on. Now I have a lot of training and help for that as well. Um, so that I know how to deal with like energetic boundaries, particularly and emotional boundaries, because that can be really difficult when you've got a much more exaggerated cancer moon, I think. Yeah. And I will just say for myself, I mean, I have a Sag moon in the first that's out of bounds, pretty closely conjunct Mars. So there's a lot going on. Um, (laughs) But I I also like relate to the spiritual sensitivity. And um, I think that there's probably something with like moon ruling the eighth and the first and Jupiter in the eighth. uh, I'm sorry, moon in the first ruling the eighth and vice versa with Jupiter. Are there other aspects in your chart with your moon that you think are important to discuss? I think the the most notable thing about my moon is that it sees almost every single planet in my chart except for Mercury. Oh, wow. So it sees my ascendant. It's it's opposite uh, Capricorn stellium in my third house. It sees my sun. It makes aspects to all the stuff I have in Taurus, which is basically my whole chart there. Mm. And... um. It also even sees my nodes. So, I mean, the only thing it doesn't see is it doesn't see my Mercury, my IC, and my MC. And that's mm. that's it. So, the moon really is kind of like, this is going to be crude, but she's that bitch in my yeah. chart. <laughs> you know? And it took me a long time to embrace it. I put so much attention on Saturn because Saturn is the dispositor of everything else in my chart. And so, mm-hmm. I put so much emphasis on that. But the moon really is just like, doing the most in my chart as far as being a translator of light it really is translating all of the light (laughs) Mm -hmm. amazing okay yeah and i would love to hear your thoughts um if you care to share about the moon's lot and how perfections play into that as well yeah what are your thoughts on the lot of fortune Ooh, it's one that I've been giving more attention to recently. My friend Jake Green did a lot of work with the lots. Um, mm-hmm. And I was really fortunate to do a couple of like workshops with him on another lot called the Lot of Cultivation and mm-hmm. one for like the Lot of Spirit Conjoined Fixed Stars. But the Lot of Fortune, I think, is one that we kind of overlook because partially maybe because it's something that's not totally within our control. Mm-hmm. It is kind of like, this is truly the lot that you are given in life. And this idea, I was just reading up about how, um, like, the idea of the Morai, right? So the Morai were actually another one of those kind of figures that get attached to the moon. And the Morai Mm -hmm. were these three, um, we call them the fates now, these Mm -hmm. three figures that were spinning a thread. And this was the thread of life, right? And you could say that um, Lachesis, who is the central one she actually is is doing the the weaving of the spinning of it um 
she has a lot to do with this idea of like the lot that you are given, right? Mm -hmm. So this could be family. It could be wealth or lack thereof resourcing. It could be what part of the world that you're in, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so where your lot of fortune is placed in your chart and the ruler of your lot of fortune, as well as if it makes an aspect to your moon, is absolutely vital, I think, to kind of understanding our place in the world. But also for me, I do a lot of remediation in my work. Like uh, I've been doing remediation now for four years. Mm -hmm. um, and how do we help you with shifting that a little bit to bring out mm -hmm. more of the positive significations? And then for the stuff that you can't really control, for example, if you were uh, born with some sort of uh, physical disability or something like that, how do we learn how to make peace and make the most out of that? And looking to your lot of fortune and what's going on with a lot of fortune is, I think, super vital, um, particularly that placement. Like, where is it in the chart? And is it making a harsh aspect to, like, the ascendant, mm -hmm. to the midheaven? Because that will kind of change a lot. Like, what do we need to do to help? So for me, um, Venus is the ruler of my lot of fortune. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, my lot of fortune does make an aspect to my moon. And so I do a lot of Venus work, which I need to do anyways, because it's co-present with Saturn. And while Venus is okay in Capricorn, it's not like the best, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I do a lot of like work with Venus remediation regarding things like uh, I have a creative practice, which also segs into like Venus and the moon being in a, a applying opposition. Um, I had to start thinking more about like, as I've gotten older, I'm like, okay, how do I present myself? I didn't really care that much most of my life. And I'm like, mm -hmm. unless I had a very particular reason, which is such a Venus and Cap thing to be like, ugh, people are going to see me this way. So I've got to change that. Mm -hmm. um, but like, how do I want to show up? What are my values? What is that going to look like in the world? And that started kind of changing things. You don't realize these little things, which seem so mundane, so silly. Yeah. changes so much about the fortune or the things that you've been handed in life, whether that mm -hmm. is the state of your health, how other people perceive you so that you can have better opportunities or whatever, how you take care of yourself and how you feel about yourself, um, et cetera, et cetera. And if we don't look to that lot, because the moon is the mediatrix, mm -hmm. we could do a lot of things in life and then be like, why does it keep happening like this? Right. And learning how to do that is important. The second thing is like the perfections, right? Mm -hmm. So perfections, we can perfect from the lot of fortune. Uh, you can perfect from any lot, actually. So perfections is an interesting technique by which every single year of the life, uh, a particular house becomes activated in the chart and that lord of the house becomes your lord of the year, um, as well as the lords that are actually in the house at that time. When you actually perfect from the lot of fortune it will tell you a lot about like what are the circumstances of this year right yeah what's going on with that right mm -hmm. yeah i just want to uh give a shout out to ali alomi because he has like a whole um a whole series of lectures on timing techniques but talks about in his perfections lecture lecture in particular he talks about like the four like how you can project perfect from everything but like the medieval islamic astrologers like would definitely do four and it was the MC, the lot of fortune, the ascendant and the sect light. And um, yeah, it's like the per perfection from the lot of fortune would tell like what would befall you that year. So kind of what you're speaking to about like 
what's going on? Like, what's the, you know, what kind of things are happening around you? Um, because you could have like a great um, ascendant perfection where the condition of the year is wonderful, but like maybe the lot of fortune, some challenging things are happening or vice versa. And we can just get like some more information about how a particular year will unfold. Yeah, especially what I like to look at is, um, are those lords working together? Mm -hmm. Or are they in a harsh aspect or in, you know, very different signs? Do they not see each other, right? So like, you can take a look at that lot of fortune and what's going on with the perfections and go, okay, I'm going to align myself to these circumstances, mm -hmm. right? And when we don't do that, we can have this great, like you said, perfection from the ascendant or the sec light is one that I really look at a lot is the sec light. And it, it's like, why isn't this going the way I want it to? And it's like, you're a lot of fortune. It's perfected house. That Lord doesn't play well with the other Lords. And you might've needed some remedial measures here, or you might've needed to realign your expectations uh, and your actions to fit with the circumstances that you're being given. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you take the, like, there's some talk about taking a lot of fortune as like a secondary ascendant. Do you kind of do that at all and do you like have this idea of like fortune houses you know I haven't played with that concept as much as I should and I, mm -hmm. I think the reason why is because in my own chart my a lot of spirit and a lot of fortune are in the same house oh, okay. and like so same with my they're all there with my ruler of my ascendant so like it, it doesn't give me enough variety, I think. Also, I'm just kind of, I'm always side-eyeing my Mars and Taurus. So mm -hmm. <laughs> just like, huh, I don't know. But I should play with that more. I think yeah. I just revealed one of my inherent biases where I'm like, mm, not you. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We're, we're allowed. We're allowed to have biases. I, I, you know, just to speak to my own bias, um, I'll say Rob Hand has this really great Norlac lecture, I think from Norlac like 2005, where he talks about taking a lot of spirit as the ascendant and how that's kind of like, I don't know how to describe it in a way that doesn't feel weird, but it's like, if you were, if you were kind of like perfectly living out your fate or perfectly like making the choices that your lot of spirit wanted you to make towards the evolution of your soul, like this is what you, your life would look like. And I have the lot of spirit in my 12th house in Scorpio, which I have like not a lot of contact with. And so I'm just kind of like, uh, I don't know about that. Like, that feels a little hard for me. So I, I, I feel, um, you know, it's like, I don't know if I'm going to be doing that or I'm not doing it right now, but it's like, yeah, I think that that's the cool thing about the astrological community. It's like, not everybody has to do everything, you know, it's like maybe somebody else does that work and that's more fit, like more kind of fitting for them. Absolutely. I actually think that our divination method is something that chooses us too because the mm. divine is speaking to us right mm -hmm. and so like i do really well with like uh secondary progressions and perfections and using particular uh like perfections from different places and solar returns i'm actually pretty good at solar returns but like i can do zodiacal releasing but i don't feel like it's my thing you know mm -hmm. actually makes me a neurotic mess in my personal life and that's why i stopped using it because i was like nope i don't need more excuses for that waxing gibbous moon to think like it needs to prepare more mm. um and i find people who do it i honestly i'm just like you guys are the goats like yeah it's so much work first of all <laughs> and mm -hmm. secondly to become really good at interpreting that um I think takes a massive amount of skill and practice and I'm very impressed by it, but like, I just don't have it in me to do it. Mm -hmm. I just don't. Yeah. 
I feel that. Um, do you have any suggestions for practitioners that do zodiacal releasing well, you think? Oh, my goodness. Who do I think does zodiacal releasing well? I mean, like, obviously, the GOAT is going to be Patrick Watson. Mm -hmm. That's the king. Um, trying to think about any, I think all my contemporaries are in the same boat as me where we're like the ones that I'm really close to are like, yeah, that's not for me. Um, mm. I do know that my, my friend Whitney, um, trying to remember, I think she goes by Cobra and Crescent on Twitter and yeah. Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like she's been knocking it out of the park for herself with the ZR. I know she does a lot of, um, just like talking about the connection to like Egyptian astrology, mm -hmm. which by the way is amazing. And that's another thing you guys should check out. Um, but as far as someone I've seen, like applying it religiously, like, holy cow, uh, that's, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. And I'd really be interested. I don't know if she's doing readings for other people in that vein, but I feel like she should. <laughs> so like, yeah, here you go, to, Whitney, I'll, you need to do it. <laughs> I'll have to ask her if she is. Cause yeah, Whitney and I are kind of, kind of homies and interact on, on Twitter as well. Yeah. I want to just give a shout out real quick to, to Kira. She has a great um, lecture on zodiacal releasing. And I know that's kind of like Kira Ryberg. That's kind of like her focus. Um, she like focuses almost not exclusively on ZR, but that's one of like her main focuses. Um, so I want to give a shout out to her. And yeah, just curious uh, if like, you know, how secondary progressions come into this and like how you've seen um, maybe some modulation of that needle lunar phase with like the secondary progressed lunar phase. Oh, so a great example of this is I moved into, uh, I think I'm in a full moon now. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you're born with a waxing gibbous, you're going to quickly go through into the dark side, right. right, in life. And so I'm now back in a full moon phase. I'm, stop, I'm, I'm actually at a point, this is the first year, and I think I, I progressed into it, I want to say like the end of last year, um, where I don't feel the need to prepare nearly as much as I used to, which is really saying something, because I mean, I used to be a neurotic mess before any podcast, before any mm. class I did, like, I would try to shove as much into it as possible. And in fact, I started asking myself, I was going through my books. I'm trying to like become much more focused on like where I want to take my practice and my own private life and all that. I started asking myself, like, why do you need this knowledge? Mm. And I've never asked myself that before. Like, I think I'm just such a super nerd and knowledge itself is almost like, uh, it's like a turn on or something. It's like candy. Mm. And I started going through my books and I'm like, I'm, I'm starting to feel stressed by the number of books I have in my library that either I don't read or have not read because I tell myself I should mm -hmm. or that it would be good or it would be a good reference. Yeah. And the full moon is kind of like it's fully arrived and it's also more focused on like what is helpful to others. It's more relational mm -hmm. rather than just feeling like I'm preparing, I'm preparing, I'm preparing, I'm preparing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's been a very new thing this year. And I feel like it's the first, obviously it's the first time as an adult where I've felt that way. Um, mm -hmm. I couldn't speak to it because the last time that happened, I would have been like three or four years old, I think. Right. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It, it very much, um, there's an ease that I haven't had. Um, and also there's this bigger focus. So with the waxing gibbous, it's been much more like, again, preparation and improving and things. But now I'm like, what is the value of what I'm giving to others? Mm. 
not just me trying to feel safe, which I think that's what that is when I'm trying to prepare is a need for right. safety. Um, but like, what is the value of what I'm giving to others? And I also feel like there's a feeling of stability around like, um, if someone doesn't feel that value, then they're not the person for me. Mm. And before I will tell you, I've had a few instances of this where I'll do like a workshop and this is how lunar people I think often will relate. Um, and I've gotten lots of praise for it, but one person will come at me with some actual good critique, like it's critique that I can consider it as valid. Like it's one thing to be like, I just didn't like it. Cause then I'll be like, well, you okay. don't have to, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. you want a refund? Like, mm -hmm. um, but it's another when someone is like, well, I just feel like this is what you promised, but you didn't do this, this, and this. And I felt mm -hmm. like you focused more on this and me to be like, actually they're right. And then me freaking out about it and being like, should I redo this whole thing? Mm. Right. And I've had that happen a couple of times where it completely throws me for a loop and freaks me out. And it's a, not a pleasant place to be. But now I'm at the point where I'm like, well, then this probably isn't for you. Yeah. This probably isn't for you because the people that did need this have also spoken up and said, gosh, I needed that. Mm. and thinking more about like how is this going to serve somebody else what can i give there's a real giving quality here whereas before i will admit that while i always want to be someone who's giving i think that's a cancer kind of thing to want to make sure mm. everyone's fed my own safety i think took a greater precedence over that where i'm like do i feel safe enough smart enough smart is safe right mm. do i feel mm. smart enough prepared enough right. to give this to the world where I will feel like I am above criticism or um, my main thing. And I think a lot of us feel this way is like there are, we, we call it the trad chat community, mm -hmm. right? It's people who are super purist about things, uh, really, really old school. And like our, I think all of us have this great fear that we're going to receive the ire of the trad chads. Mm. And for someone who used to put so much emphasis on my intellect as a value or even my whole self-worth, like the last thing I want to do is to get into uh, intellectual debate to the degree that our good friend Gabe Rosas will tell you there's many times I've come to him and been like, am I right about this? And like, can you verify this? Because I feel like Gabe is like uh, literally the smartest person in our community. Mm. <laughs> and he's always like, Amaya, you know what you're doing. Mm. fine and I'm like no I don't I don't know what I'm doing like so I feel like that's eased up a hell of a lot and I'm really enjoying it I'm like damn this is nice like, yeah that sounds amazing Excited but that's that's the qualitative difference you know what I'm saying right yeah have you had an experience like that with your do you use progressions I'm curious um I I mean this kind of start of my astrological studies, um, which was like just last year, which is weird to say, given the fact that I like have this podcast and stuff like that. But um, I had a, a progressed new moon eclipse. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I was, it was in my third house in Aquarius. And I was in grad school at the time for urban planning. And like basically to the day that it went exact, I basically had like a complete personal collapse around being in grad school and like was basically just like, I had burnt out so hard in that year being in school, just like 
kind of like with work and school working like 80 90 hours a week for a whole year and like the first semester was great and then the second semester like I just very quickly I was just like this is not actually really what I want to be doing and this isn't resonant I don't think I'm going to really actually fit into this kind of because it's like you know training to be a kind of a bureaucrat we're fitting into a system a month so I kind of like to the day had this like falling away from that and then a month later you know I've been kind of studying astrology and I for for a while but I went to Norwalk a month after that progressed um, new moon eclipse and like that's really where I feel like a spark was lit for me with like a passion for learning astrology so I kind of traded like being in grad school for for like learning astrology really intensely and and now I'm in the you know I'm about to move next month into the progressed crescent where the you know like the mm-hmm. sun and the moon will be 15 degrees away from each other and like that first sliver of the progressed moon will start to be seen and so I'm really excited to see what seeds that were planted at that progressed new moon eclipse start to sprout now that the moon will start to be um, visible uh, so I feel like it really uh, is descriptive of like the phase of life that I'm in, at least in that particular instance. Uh, and it seems to show up like when I do readings for other people uh, or talk to them about their their charts, um, it seems to be re- really resonant. You know, if someone is like waxing towards a full moon, there's like some type of culmination that's occurring. Um, or if someone's in like a, you know, a balsamic phase, it's like real feelings of you know, turning inward and reflecting and maybe lower energy levels and what have you. So yeah, I love secondary progressions, especially the the progressive lunar cycle. I absolutely agree. Yeah, in my client sessions, it's like the fastest way to get a read real quick on what is going on. Mm-hmm. And also I find that it's resonant, but it's also revealing because mm-hmm. what I find in session is that clients often feel like something is wrong with them. I can't explain Mm. how many times I have that conversation um and then I'll be like well you know this is where your progressed moon is and usually this is what it would mean and they'll be like oh really and I'm like yeah actually you're you're right on time this is this is the thing that's supposed to be happening and they'll be like okay and like the relief the level of relief is really tangible I feel when people feel like they've sunk up with what I would say uh nature or divinity has kind of like planned for them and it's a nice way to like quickly be like, let me just pull that up in Astro Gold and look at our sheets. And oh, look at right. that. Yeah. And I think that can be so um that can be so comforting because it's not like a transit that you might follow regularly, but it's and but it's also like this idea of like if you're like I'm born with a a balsamic moon, so I kind of like am used to what that feels like. But I, I can imagine if by progression you're going through a balsamic phase, you're just like what the fuck is going on? Why is why is it like this right now? And so I think if you can have someone be like, yeah, that's exactly like, that's what you're going through. That makes a lot of sense, given the fact that like the moon has, you know, is 10 degrees away from your, your native, like your progressed sun or, you know, whatever it might be. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very therapeutic tool in a way. And I also find that it's important for understanding, like, sometimes you can have like this awesome perfection and you're like, yeah, it's gonna be great. And then you find out like that moon phase, because the moon is the mediatrix, it's what's going to actually mm-hmm. um, 
cause things to generate or decay in the life. Mm. It's either going to grow or it's going to go away. And so if you've got this great uh, perfection, but that lunar phase is like, you know what? You're you're now entering the dark moon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, but I'm supposed to be finishing grad school. <laughs> it's like, yeah. nope, no, you're not. All right. Yeah. So have you tracked the cycles of the moon in relation to your own emotional life? And if so, what have you found? And here, I'd love to hear if you have any um, any takes on the, the void of course moon. Okay. So my thing on void of course moon is I'm real traditional about this because otherwise we'd have a lot of void of course moons. And I just don't think that's the case. Um, mm-hmm. It really does need to be like, it needs to be not making any aspects for 30 degrees at okay. all. And I mean, like, really no aspects. So I'm very particular about that. And I don't, I will say this, I don't count that amongst the outers because Mm -hmm. the outers are such slow moving planets. And I do believe those are more generational kind of forces that are maybe outside of just ourselves in that sense in the chart. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously exceptions, like if it's angular or conjoined a planet or whatever, it'll modify things. Um, But (laughs) like with void of course, void of course, on like a day-to-day basis, um, I'm really going to look like, is it making an aspect, you know, within so many uh, degrees within this 24-hour period mm-hmm. to any of the seven classical planets? Yeah. If the answer is yes, it's not void, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be, what I would say is it's kind of like it goes from being a symphony when it's making a lot of aspects to a lot of planets to being like a one uh, kind of instrument uh, moment, right? It's getting its mm-hmm. solo. Mm-hmm. And so, and we do see that, like when you've got, say, the moon is an aspect to Saturn and nothing else, all those Saturnian themes get dialed up and you can hear them really clearly for that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it's just like by a kind of like sign, you can still kind of feel that. So for me, void, of course, is really like it needs to be very precisely like 30 degrees, no aspects, then you really feel it. It's a dead zone. Um, it's kind of the same with like stationing retrograde plants. I find that the station, those days around the station are more impactful than the retrograde itself because mm. the planet is slowing down. And so it's really not working according to what it should, right? Mm-hmm. So void, of course, if the moon acts as the translator of light and it doesn't make aspects for an entire like 24 hours, with 30 degrees, you're going to feel that everything's going to come to a screeching halt. Nothing's going to happen the way that you want it to. Um, and then as far as tracking lunar cycles, I mean, that's a huge part of my practice because I'm also, uh, esoteric occultist and being a very lunar person, I started paying attention to moon cycles, like probably five or six years ago, even before I got into traditional astrology, I would say, because I started really noticing the moon in particular places. And I will say that place is usually Aries is not a good time for me. Mm. Um, and I will say this, it's like anything that goes through Aries is not a great time for me because it makes a square to the majority of my charts, making this yeah. giant T-square. And it's in my sixth house and it brings up like help. Like we had Jupiter in Aries last year and I found out that I'm celiac in the hardest way possible oh, and like all kinds of stuff. So I'm like, okay, great. I, it's not even about the planet, just anything in that house, anything, because Jupiter should be kind of nice. And it really, really wasn't. It was like mm-hmm. a explosion of inflammation in my body so uh i started noticing that first with the moon the moon would go into aries and i'd be like oh today is terrible today is (laughs) terrible i'm tired i don't want to do anything 
And then of course, I think other people who uh, menstruate will probably realize that your period syncs up with the moon. And I started tracking that really carefully because I was like, what's happening here? Why does this keep happening on these particular moon signs? Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of developed beyond that. And it's part of my creative practice that I have, which is an almost daily thing. But I do always make notes about like the moon. It's such an elementary thing. And I think a lot of people don't do it because it's elementary. But my God, if you track the moon and what's going on with the moon, like I said, you're going to become like a pro astrologer in no time because it has Mm -hmm. such a a noticeable impact um, in your world every single day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you did give that uh, suggestion at the beginning uh, to become a pro astrologer, to track the moon. Do you have any other suggestions for people who are like new to forming, you know, planetary relationship or new to astrology, maybe um, to like initiate and form a relationship with the moon? So when it comes to the moon, um, and I would, I, I would say this about any planet or star. First of all, go out and look at it. Yeah. <laughs> And go outside. The moon is amazing because unlike some of the planets or even the stars, it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. um, Unless you are literally under the cover of uh, black smoke, you are going to more than often than not, you're going to be able to see it. And I think that that's a great way to have that kind of physical connection. Uh, The moon is the easiest one for you to track too. And you'll start to notice other things like Oh, well, when the moon is in this phase, it shows up on this side of the sky and also doesn't rise until later. Or sometimes I only see it during the day and starts to kind of change your idea of like why the moon in certain phases might have the meaning that it does when you start Mm. connecting it to that physical observation, because that's what the ancients were doing. That's why we have this whole system of stuff coming up. Um, The other thing is uh, when we're Forming planetary relationships. My advice is, and I taught this a long time ago when I was teaching, um, I called it Star Praxis, uh, Ancient Astrology for Modern Witches is the first class I ever taught. Very ambitious. Basically, I I will one day retool it to be animistic astrology because that's really what it was Mm -hmm. uh, with like some, you know, witchy stuff thrown in, but it was about embodying uh, astrology. And it was about particularly every single week we would go through and like you had an assignment for the moon Mm -hmm. and the moon would be like, we need to find a place that would be descriptive of the moon's qualities. We need to find a food that's descriptive of the moon's qualities. And this is so you can have that embodied experience in that relationship. And this is how we go for people who are into witchy or occult stuff. We go beyond correspondences you find in a book. You start to realize what those qualities really are. Um, and so what's really easy to do if you want like a kind of like baseline of this is you can go to skyscript.co.uk. It's a great resource. Um, and you can click on the moon and you can go to traditional, uh, significations of the moon and you'll get these descriptions from William Lilly, because that's a great source to just get you started where he talks about different places that kind of are assigned with the qualities of the moon or um, foods that are assigned or herbs that are assigned, right? Um, And that way you can kind of go and be like, okay, I'm doing this moon relationship and I want to have a physical experience that is emblematic and I'm learning about the moon through the things that the moon signifies, through the relation Mm -hmm. the moon has with the world. Um, 
One of my favorite ways to connect with the moon of all time, also did a class on this, is gardening. Mm. Learning about growth and decay and the way that seeds germinate and when to feed them and when not. And we have traditionally always done that by the moon anyways. Yeah. And um, I think at some point I'll make that as a recorded class you can buy. But those would be my top ones is like, yeah, go go do these things. That, that helps you with, I feel like a lot of astrology is like, let's sit down with a chart that has nothing to do with looking at the sky and read mm-hmm. a book. And I'm like, no, I want you to go out and live it. I want you to experience it. And you'll suddenly start to understand those qualities of the planet that you are uh, in question of wanting to understand because they're here with us mm-hmm. all the time. They're here yeah. with us, whether or not we are aware of it and What's great is that when you become aware of it, it actually enchants your world. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, and powerful suggestions. Thank you for that. Um, is there anything else that you want to add? Do you have any imparting, imparting thoughts about the moon? Oh, my gosh. Um, high order. <laughs> what was that? I said high order. We're three hours in. Let's see. I know. I feel, uh, like, we, I feel like we've done it, you know? I feel like we've done it too. Um, There's so much about the moon that we could literally probably go on for eons. So I'm going to say, you know what? We're going to respect what the moon is telling us right now. And that is the body going, spend three hours and SP needs to eat. And I need to go see my family because it's late here in Ireland. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. So with that, where can we find you? And is there, can you tell us what you're working on again? And, um, Anything that you'd like to share with us? Okay, you can find me at moonhavenastrology.com. What I've been working on right now is actually guides for every moon phase. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's been a big project that I've just been pouring myself into. Eventually, I'll release my eclipse guides. That, that'll that be free. I was supposed to do it the last eclipse, but like I said, that eclipse was like, ha-ha, you thought. Um <laughs> That's the biggest thing I'm working on. Obviously, I'm at the end of my fixed star readings, and so I'm starting. I'm trying to get through those. I might have made too much open schedule for that. Uh, so it's been a, a bit of a heavy month of consultations, um, and that's really the the major thing um, is those guides. And I'm giving this new reading called Lunar Rhythms. I have a shape shifting reading, which is all about cycles, and we really are looking at those lunar progressions. And what's going on in the life, but also looking at some of the timing techniques you and I talked about today uh, with the perfections and the solar return and what's going on with the part of fortune, just to understand where we are in our life and how to respond to it. And if we need to do some balancing with remediation as far as like, what can we do to make this go easier and better for us? Mm. A lot of great lunar offerings you got going on. Um Wonderful. Amaya, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for, I really appreciate all the preparation that you put into this and like the generosity of time that you've shown. I I really appreciate it a lot. It's been such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you today. Um, So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Your podcast is such a wonderful balm, I think people to talk about their I think a lot of astrology gets theoretical and you're like have you experienced this what is the lived sense of this and I think that that's a gift so thank you for doing this and putting yourself out there because I did listen to your first one and how you were like I don't know if I should do this or not that balsamic (laughs) moon is like what if I just stayed dark (laughs) yeah my gosh 
Well, thank you for that. I really, that is really meaningful. Yeah, thank you so much. It's so nice to get the feedback and hear that people are enjoying it and that like it's contributing something um, means a lot. So thanks. Well, thank you for having me. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. To support the show by donating or becoming a member, please visit my website, which is linked in the show notes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you listen. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. See those links in the show notes as well. If you have any questions or feedback on the show, please feel free to contact me via my website or email me at sphallhorary at gmail.com. In the show notes, you can also find links to astrologers and resources that we touched on in this episode. Thanks. See you next time.